This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Welcome to the program, everybody. Top of the morning to you. And uh, man alive, Tuesday, another great day. You're still breathing. Life is still working for you. Great show for you today. We are going to be uh, speaking in just a few minutes with Ryan Long um, uh, from Stanford Law School, Center for Internet and Society. He's going to be talking about binary thinking, you know, kind of black, white, A, B thinking, really quick, fast decisions. You know, we're wired to think fast. Problem? Not so good in relationships. Not so good in conflict resolution. That's not true. Oh, you, really? I just made a quick decision. Right there, you just made it. Now, as I think about it, you may have a point. See? If you just wait just a little bit longer, <laughs> just wait like five more seconds, boom, it'll have you'll have all the logic you need. We're very quick to think. So, Paris, France, that whole thing. Oh, bad. Bad, right? It's bad. What do we do? Uh, nothing or bomb people? Bomb. Apparently we bomb people. See, if we make these quick decisions, the dilemma is the, our problems are much more complicated than our thinking allows us to do. So we've got to learn another way to think. Maybe slow it down a bit. Not so binary. Not so A, B. Not so one, two. Not so black, white. <sighs> but how do you do it? We'll be talking about that with Ryan Long in just a few moments. But uh, before we go there, Charlie Sheen. Crazy. HIV. I mean, it makes sense. He was known to be a partier. Yes. But tragic. Not not, not someone who exercises caution. And what is what does it mean anymore? Because it's it seems like we've made a lot of advancements in HIV and AIDS. Yeah. I mean, it's different, obviously, than AIDS. And so, yeah, I mean, who is it? Uh, Magic Johnson. Yeah. When I was a kid, that was a huge day when Magic Johnson announced yeah. Because at that point, we thought death sentence. Arthur right? Ashe. And he seems to be healthy. Arthur yeah. Ashe had that, and it it's, took it, his life. It seems like this is where, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, it's back in the forefront now. Now there's going to be a lot of discussion about it again. It, we haven't talked about it as much for years. But now the Hollywood scene's back on it. It's a weird thing because is this, you know, is this what we should be talking about? This is this right. is a person's, you know, health. Apparently, the information leaked on the National Enquirer. Well, then that tells us right there. So we probably ought not be talking about it. They uh, leaked his personal information, and it's something that you need to have the opportunity to tell people about, not have some yeah. publication put it up. I there. mean, and then all the news stations are picking up on it. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, he's very open, it seems like. He's giving information. It's he just... was on the Today Show to talk about it, so. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's it's good. It was a big part of Hollywood back in the 80s. You know, that was the – everyone had friends that were dying of AIDS or H, and then HIV first and then AIDS. Anyway, it's – we wish him best of luck. That's tragic. But again, who knows what it means anyway? We probably need to have a discussion about it. We need to get a guess. I'll see what we can do. Because when was the last time we really discussed AIDS or HIV? It's amazing. It's just kind of something that's out there. Hmm. We always hear about it. It's, you know, in Africa. Millions right. of people are dying of 
AIDS, I guess, in Africa. I'll, I'll see what we can find. Okay. Get on that. Get on it. And uh, what is the deal? Now all of the, the states are kind of lining up, deciding who's going to accept refugees, who's not. Yeah. Do they not all realize that whether you accept refugees or not, if the country's going to accept refugees, then yeah, it's, a, it's, it's a, the same problem. It's a federal government yeah. decision. Now, they, they're trying to say that they don't. They're not going to let them in their state borders, but I'm not sure what control they have over that either. Yeah, how, so. yeah, how would you stop? Stop every car? Maybe. <laughs> Are you from Syria? Okay, you can come through. Yeah, please. Welcome to whatever state. No Syrians. Syrians, please, must check in before you enter the state. It's just crazyville. But the reality is is there's fears, right? Because who who knows? No, there's, there's real fears. Yeah. And we'll talk about that in a minute here. But it's at the same time, there's two sides to the issue. Right. And both sides are using the same event to illustrate right. their... Their fear. And there are there yeah. are like four million refugees that are running with terror from their homeland because they are being killed, and then some are even saying, "Well, we'll accept some of them if they're Christian. We'll accept Christian refugees." Yeah, yeah. The minute you're going there, come on. And how do you tell? This is the land of the free, the home of the brave. Can right? you look at an individual, and unless yeah. they're wearing? Specific clothing oh, or yeah. carrying a book or some you kind. Can't Can you discriminate against religion? Come on. Yeah, we were founded on better than that. But yet, you know, as President Obama says, there is no religious test, right, for entry. Isn't it interesting what we're running into in this world? I mean, I get it. You want to be safe, so let's be as safe as we can be. And it seems like we need to do something with four million refugees that are just innocent bystanders. Yes. Now. Well, yeah, but there's some that are terrorists. True. I totally believe right. it. So what? Let's just say— And there's some Christians who like to blow things up too. Yeah, one hundredth of one percent we need to worry about. Yeah. So vet them. But, well, how, but really, how well can we vet them? That's the problem. The, the process the U.S. government uses is long, drawn out, and probably can be streamlined. It yeah. takes two years on a normal, under normal situations for someone to be uh, vetted, if mm-hmm. you will. I, don't you think, honestly, coming – there's a better likelihood that any of the four million will, let's say, a percentage of them come to America and then they're not treated well and then – and they don't have – they don't live in adequate conditions and they're ostracized. That seems like a better likelihood of creating a terrorist yes. than actually bringing one across the border. Do you know what I mean? Like we're already getting homegrown – we're already getting but- people that are being – it's conceivable that somebody yeah. could slip through. Too. No, they could. They yeah. could. And so, but I mean, again, there's two sides. If their if their name's not already on the radar, we don't know who they are. And as we've seen over the last 24 hours, we still don't know who some of the people that uh, were involved in the attacks are. Right. Apparently, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's all this is a, the tangled yeah, web. This is why we can't do the binary thinking. You can't yes. just go A B. You can't do A B. Good, bad, black, white. Christian, Muslim, can't do that. You should try living your day, one day, making one-second decisions on everything you do. <laughs> oh, Just believe me. See I've what done happens. that. <laughs> I've done that, and it doesn't bode well. While you're driving, mm-hmm. while you're interacting with family members, yeah. just the first thing that comes to your mind. Yeah. Not good. Yeah. 
Yeah, and someone's going to get punched. Uh, so we'll, we'll get to that. Uh, we'll talk about the binary thinking, the quick, fast tools we've got in our brain to think, except in reality, you know, they don't make great long-term decisions. We'll be getting to that in a minute with Ryan Long. But before we do that, let's get to the headlines with Terry South. Terry? Thanks, Matt. In his news conference at the G20 summit in Turkey, President Obama announced a new agreement Monday to streamline the U.S. process of sharing intelligence with France in light of Friday's deadly terrorist attacks in Paris carried out by the Islamic State. He also said the U.S. had no specific intelligence in advance about ISIS threats towards Paris. Obama also called on other nations to aid Syria, a nation grappling with civil war and a heavy ISIS presence. Obama affirmed his administration's commitment to taking up to 10,000 Syrian refugees in the next year. More than 20 U.S. states governors have announced that they will refuse to take in Syrian refugees following Friday's events. Friday evening's deadly terrorist attacks in Paris. Presidential candidates John Kasich of Ohio, Bobby Jindal of Louisiana, Chris Christie of New Jersey were among those who are saying they will refuse refugees in their state. Here's Chris Christie. I do not trust this administration to effectively vet the people who, who are proposed to be coming in in order to protect the safety and security of the American people, so I would not permit them in. New Hampshire Governor Maggie Hassan became the first government or Democratic governor to say no to the refugees. She may still be the only one, the rest being Republican governors, who have decided to do this. So far, the U.S. has accepted 1,900 refugees in the past two years, or 0.0004% of all Syrian refugees. Yeah. So, you know. That's interesting. Not much. One of the Paris attackers was found with a Syrian passport, leading to the reaction from governors here in America to vow to block Syrian refugees from entering their states. But that passport's legitimacy is in doubt at this hour. The independent newspaper in the UK reports that Serbian police on Monday arrested a man carrying a Syrian passport with the exact same details as the document found on the Paris bomber. In an interview with the Daily Beast, a former member of the ISIS, of ISIS emphasized that Syrian passports like the one found on the Paris terrorist can be bought from a, the, the Syrian regime for about $1,000. A reporter from the London Daily Mail purchased an identical passport for $2,000. So you have one we're making and an, you're looking saying, OK, the terrorist had a, had a passport from Syria, so let's shut it down. Right. That passport's number came across greece and through yeah. europe and all the way up to uh, a, a refugee camp of sorts so there's that possibility of that passport number but now they have multiple passports with the same information on it so it looks uh, like they're being you know that's fraud it's yeah. they're being forged so you have people reacting to the refugee issue but at the same time the other side's looking at it like well this is fake so you shouldn't make the reaction well, the governors are like, now we can't even have any you know, confidence that the passports are real and that these people are who they say they are. And so right. let's shut it down and try to figure out what we're doing first. Ugh. So it's an interesting concept. Yeah. We'll see how this turns out with the uh, the governors and where their, uh, their objections lie in the end of the story. Russian security chiefs said Tuesday that a terrorist act brought down the Russian airliner that crashed the Egypt-Sinai Peninsula on October 31st. So the, the crash of the Metro Air airplane was found to be by explosion up to uh, they're saying about the equivalent of as much as two pounds of tnt wow. causing the plane to crash and break up so the russians have finally concluded what everyone else had assumed it has now been validated president vladimir putin vowed to find and punish those responsible hmm. uh, for the attacks that killed the uh, the 224 people aboard that airplane syria or isis claimed responsibility for the crash shortly after the attack interesting um in other news the uh, Presidential Medal of Freedom 
Uh-huh. That guy's amazing. Steven Spielberg, Barbara Streisand, uh, Steven Sondheim, and Gloria Estefan, along with James Taylor, among the recipients of this year's oh. Medal of Honor. There's I a thought whole we were list. talking about the, the soldier that lost three No, this is the limbs. Presidential Medal of Freedom, not oh, Medal yeah. of Honor, excuse yeah, that's me. Different. So that's coming up. It's kind of interesting. They, I like they, the Medal of Honor. <laughs> Medal of Honor is a little better, so. Well, so they're all going to go sit up in the booth and look down and wave like... There'll be a concert you can watch on TV. Beautiful. Beautiful. Oh, the tangled web. Isn't it crazy? We live in such a wild world where we're talking about bombs in Egypt in an airplane. We're talking about Paris. And uh, then we talk about Hollywood elites winning their awards. Okay. Uh, Binary thinking. That's our next topic. Ryan Long will be joining us in just a few moments. Our brains are wired to make quick decisions, right? So we quickly evaluate good, bad by, by making a binary choice, A or B, one or two, black or white, up or down, yes or no. The problem with it is it sets up for a lot of conflict problems because, you know, most court cases stay in the courts because we end up fighting the binary thought when in reality some of the best solutions – aren't an A or a B. It's like a J. we got to get to the J decision. We'll be talking with an expert on it. Ryan Long will be joining us, uh, and he's going to be walking us through an article that he wrote published in Stanford Law School's Center for Internet and Society titled The Good, the Bad, the Ugly of Binary Thinking. Stick with us, folks, helping you uh, think uh, better thoughts in your life. Hopefully that will create a better life for you. We'll be right back. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Hey, friends, welcome back to the show. Dr. Matt here. Uh, you know, binary thinking is what helps us make split-second decisions. It is what portrays things as right or wrong, black or white. However, oftentimes decisions need to be made in situations and are specific to what's going on in the situation, right? It's not just A or B. We need to be able to analyze and pip- and be able to actually think through the situation or the process. Our guest today, Ryan Long, said in his article published in the Stanford Law School Center for the Internet and Society, the article was titled The Good, the Bad, and Ugly of Binary Thinking. He said sometimes the best choices that you, uh, when you come to a fork in the road is to retreat or even merge the two forks by taking one and then going off-road to the other. And yet binary thinking will always force us to choose between right or left fork. Ryan is here on the phone with us to talk more about the good, the bad of binary thinking and how we can better merge the opposing camps. Ryan Long, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Hi, good morning, Matt. Thanks for having me. Ryan, you bet. Thanks for being with us. This is, I think, such a great uh, article. I mean, as it dives in, we do it so naturally, don't we? Our brain just naturally minimizes you know the options right it, it instead of giving us 10 options to take a road there's two yeah it's a good point i think that the mind because there's the world so much there's so much information in the world that we often use tools which i think philosophers called heuristics yeah to understand the world and simplify it but a lot of times the heuristics we have are so simple that they actually are hurtful because they diminish the complexity of the situation and make us think we understand it, but we have no idea what, what it is about. Well, I mean, we see this just in the news today um, with the Syrian refugees. 
So mm-hmm. do we do we bring them in and let them blow us up, or do we keep them out and neglect them? <laughs> well, I think the bigger the bigger issue is, is immigration in general. Right. I think that you have a lot of folks that come to the United States from Mexico, for instance, that are hardworking and they're good people, and then you have other folks that are potential threats. Uh, like one of the gentlemen that I think allegedly did the uh, Paris shooting was from Syria. Right. And I think that's a, that's a concern. So I think you have to be – I think we have to worry about security right now. Yeah. But see, the binary idea is one or the other, but there's really well, the 50 binary, options, yeah, right? The situation would be uh, no immigration whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, other, the other extreme is allow everybody in no matter what, who they are, and just you know, open your arms up to everybody. So mm-hmm. th- those are the two extremes, and the middle ground is – really vet who's coming in your country. Yeah. And, and I guess I guess that's the key and that's the big point of your article. The good, the bad, and the ugly. I mean, the good is when we have binary choices, we can probably make a better, fast, quick decision. But the reality is um, it'll, it'll impact us long term if it's not the right decision. Yeah, I think that's right. I think the bad and the ugly is sometimes also binary. You have one negative one. In terms of politics, you have somebody that's maybe in the far right and the far left, and what they do is they negate each other, and they don't build any sustainable policy. It's, it's just almost like – I said bipolar for a reason, mm-hmm. debilitating. So you actually don't – you don't create any type of system that's ongoing in terms of long-term policy, and you actually create bigger messes when you go to the bi- when there's binary situation. I mean there are people that live their entire life, I guess, out of the binary mind though, right? Everything is just black or white. I think I think you're right, Matt. I mean, I, a recent example, and I won't say any names, but I was approached by a law firm. A client of mine had a trademark, and they approached us and said, sign this agreement or we're going to try to cancel your mark, i.e., sign this agreement or we're going to kill you, right? And that <laughs> right. was the way they approached us. And we actually agreed with them that their mark shouldn't have been rejected by the government. So instead of approaching us to do a deal and saying, hey, the government screwed up, would you guys help us out? And we would have said, yeah, great, no problem. So if my client wasn't as nice as he was and he had a lot of money to spend, they would have had a war on their hands and they hmm. could have lost it. So sometimes we create conflicts because we approach situations not looking to do a deal, but because we're stuck in that binary, Matt, right? Like right. either I'm going to dominate or he's going to dominate me. It's a zero-sum game. And that's the reason why, you know, look at the top 40 wealthiest people in the world. They're not lawyers for a reason, that's in my humble opinion. And I'm a, I'm a lawyer. So. That's true. They're also not social workers. They're not therapists either. <laughs> So I don't know. They're also not radio hosts. Well, I feel it might be, but they're not. I mean, that's this. It's that's what's so funny about life, isn't it? Is that we we sit here and we we look at. Um, I mean, I even look at religion can be binary: good, bad, right, wrong, black, white, devil, angel. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's such an easier way, I guess, to go through life. But you really you end up cutting out ninety other choices. Or, you know, hundreds, thousands of other opportunities that lie somewhere in the middle. I, I, well, no, yeah, that, but I think it takes a lot of imagination and patience to go away from the binary. And the problem is that, you know, if you look at popular policies, a lot of them tend to be very binary, you know, extreme. Like, you know, and they demonize certain people. And you end up getting, like, not really rational policy, but they're very popular. Because most people, Matt, they, they really don't want to think. They would just want to be kind of have this binary situation and go, you know, right or left and right. feel comfortable with it, right? Whereas yeah. if it's more complex, people actually have to sit there and think about it. And a lot of people either don't have the time because they have to take care of children and, uh, you know, what have, what have you, and they just want to be told something and quick. And mm-hmm. I think that's, you know, one of the dangers now with technology and a lot of the blogs and, and Twitter feeds is that they take very complex situations uh, and, and reduce them to, like, five words. Well, that, that's why... 
that's why like foreign policy and politics um, and all of this policymaking, it it seems that I guess that's probably why so many people are frustrated with uh, the political world and the you know kind of the the state of the union is because you, the, the decisions that have to be made are so complex and yet we keep using language that's just binary but nobody seems to live what they're saying anyway yeah i think the big problem that is like the reason why i said the dirt road is that between you know republicans and democrats if they go out on a dirt road in the middle of the night we don't know who each other are and they get to do and do deals and backdoor, right? Without right. To worry about right. looking great or looking fancy or anything. There's problems that need to be solved, and we're, we, there's some very imminent threats against our country. And I think now the time is now is the time for these parties to really put their hands together and solve these problems. Because as you keep going down this road, you know, we might not be. I live in New York City right now, right? Yeah. So, you know, I, I was here during September 11th, and I'm very concerned about whether or not these people are really. Uh, looking to solve problems, or if they're looking to just kind of grandstand and make themselves look great. Mm. Um, so, really, this is this is uh, a bigger issue of the language we use and the way we negotiate complex solutions. It seems like today's day and age, we are more, we are in a more complex world than we were, you know, a hundred years ago. Every there's so many more issues at stake. And levels of complexity. It wasn't today. It's not even just country against country because we live in a global marketplace. We've borrowed money. We lend money globally. So you know, as as the complexity goes up, really the binary thinking has to go down. I agree with you, but it ten, it tends to go up because there's so much information that yeah. our brains can process. There's only some. I mean, the other day I was reading about the Sunnis and Shiites on the yeah. um, Council of Foreign Relations. And it's fascinating. I mean, they, the, the history between these folks goes way back, and yet most people, you know, put Muslims all together in one boat. Um, I mean, and that's right. And that's another thing that's cautioning. I saw in the Wall Street Journal today, uh, you know, anti-Islam. I, mean, right. I have an Islamic client, he's a Muslim client. He's one of the best clients I've ever had. Mm. Right. I mean, he's right. like the, the most gentle guy I've ever met. And so, like, you know, that's that danger too. Like, you know, they're all this way. They're all this way. So. I, I think there's a, there's, a, there's a danger now, especially with the complexity of the world, to want to go into more in a binary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe that's right? it. Because when it, you're afraid, it's overwhelming. yeah, maybe when you're afraid, you do you go to the basic instinct. You that's go to the base, point. which is yeah. binary. That's a great. Like I have my notes here. There's certain like there's three causes that I put down for binary. One is fear. Another one is historical. Like you know, in the legal profession, lawyers are taught to always think, but you know, kind of like zero sum game. Yeah, not, a lot of them are deal makers. And there's also systematic, you know, if, if, if I'm trying to do something and the money is telling me think binary to pay my rent and to survive and maybe provide for my family, I'm going to think binary because that's where the money wants me to go. Interesting, so yeah. Certain, right? I mean, yeah. there's certain causes to binary thinking, but, you know, there might be short-term things, but we really have to look at the long-term consequences of that. But so. is it because, like, for example, systemically, a court system is a binary system. Right, right. It's a true. It, there's a there's a there's a yes or no verdict. There's an right. up or down verdict, even though there's gray area. Well, there could be a verdict on you know you could be get sued for twenty counts. Oh, true. Then, you know, or what? Ha- or, or you know, be uh, indicted for twenty counts of something, and then maybe only one goes through a few. Right. You're right. Generally, and I think that's why alternative dispute resolution has gotten more popular in terms of arbitration and mediation. Yeah. Where uh, you know you, both sides are right in some ways and both sides are wrong in some ways. And you try to get one of the things I do in my counseling is, you know, I told my client the other day, I was like, there's no claim here for something. And I, I said, you know, I rarely say this. I said it's sort of, you know, I swear to the powers that be or God or whatever I said. 
And I, and I said, fire me tonight if you don't believe me. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, that's the thing. Like, when you have clients sometimes, you got to, or, you know, whoever you're working with, you got to beat them up. Because if they're looking at the other side and saying it's all their fault, it's all their fault, sometimes you got to show your client a mirror and say, this is actually what you've done to create this situation. Right. So it's an action-reaction, right? They're, 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 react, they're, they're, caught, they're acting. There's a reaction that comes their way, and they're acting like it's coming out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they're, and they're shocked. Like, I can't believe exactly. they're doing this to me, even though there are things that you did that created this culture exactly. or whatever. Exactly. It's a myopic view. And that, that's, the problem with that view is it just creates further binary tennis match where then they just want to lash out on the other side, and then the, the other side wants to lash out. And then every day becomes that kind of like Groundhog Day, which is back and forth. Do, do you sense that some people or some professions um, – they 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 thrive on the binary. They know they they know to like like politics. Everything is so binary, but that's their job is to keep it myopic and binary. <laughs> keep it two choices, like good, bad, right, wrong. Right. Do, do you think there's some people that just inherently are pushing it, knowing that it's not the healthiest way, but they're pushing it just because it gets what they want. Well, I agree with you. I mean, if you look at Washington, D.C., and I worked for a think tank down there for a while, and, you know, one of the things I saw in D.C. is that it's mostly lawyers that work there, right? Yeah. So lawyers are trained, as I said, there's, you know, cer- certain causes of binary thinking. One is systematic, one is fear, one is historical, the way you're trained to think. So lawyers are trained in law school to think, you know, I'm right, you're wrong. I went to Yale Law School or wherever you went to school. And I've seen this a lot with, with lawyers, right? They posture. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what's happening in D.C., so you have a lot of people, instead of saying, well, that's a great idea, not saying, well, who said it? You know, just looking at the idea in isolation and being open-minded. But that means you have to be creative, and most lawyers aren't creative. And I'm a lawyer. I'm not trying to, like, bash the profession, but there, is, there are some very problematic things about lawyering that are affecting, I think, uh, government, as I say in my article. And the reason why I make the dirt road example is that the dirt road, you have to make it up. You have to find your path and right. make a new path between two binary situations, and that's the way the brain works, Matt. I mean, we create, when we learn things, our, actually, our brain physically changes. So that's, that's, you know, yeah, I agree with you. I think it attracts a certain thing, and I think it needs to change because, you know, we, we, we are dealing with some people that want to come here and do some serious harm to us. Mm. We have to wake up to that. Yeah, we've had uh, other guests on the show that were, that were talking about the money and the impact of money back in D.C., and what what they end up talking about is the fact that you know the the um, lobbyists end up contributing more money to the senatorial uh, funds than does really the federal government, or not even the the, the congressional funds than mm-hmm. than than the government does. So what ends up happening is the lobbyists end up writing their own briefs for their own uh, you know for new legislation. That the the senators and the Congress people and their staffs used to write, so then it does ensure this binary model where are we pro life or pro choice? Are we pro guns or anti guns? And right. and it creates again written by lawyers uh, with lots of money uh, creating a binary system. It's it's and, and your your idea that we've got to learn to become creative to create the dirt path a new way, a third alternative, another way of thinking. Man, I love it. Let's take a break, Ryan, and come back. I want you, when we come back, to teach us how we can change our binary thinking, what we can do. Oh, geez, I don't know if I'm going to teach, but I'll, well, yeah. I'll, try, I'll try, try to just enlighten us. Enlighten us. Uh, we're speaking with Ryan Long, uh, who uh, is, is really trying to open our minds up about how we think. I mean, how we think is normal, it's natural. 
But uh, he's a legal advisor to technology, media, and design professionals in intellectual property, litigation, and corporate matters. He's also a fellow at Stanford's Law School's uh, Center for Internet and Society and an expert in intellectual property. Stick with us, folks. He's, uh, he's going to walk us through uh, how to open our minds up a little bit more, be more creative in our thinking, less binary. We'll be right back. This is The Matt Townsend Show. to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, we're talking about binary thinking, which simply put is when you, and your brain does it naturally, right? In order to simplify, instead of seeing 500 choices that you have, it makes it, breaks it down to two. Should I bring my lunch to work or should I go out to get food? Um, you know, do I have to make my lunch at home or should I go out to eat? We, we make a quick decision. Yes, no, up, down, right, left. And yet the reality of most of our life is it's much more complex than just either or, kind of dichotomistic thinking. And our guest today, uh, Ryan Long, is uh, joining us. He's the uh, author of the article, The Good, the Bad, and Ugly of Binary Thinking, which was published in Stanford Law School's Center for Internet and Society. Ryan is a legal advisor to technology, media, and design companies to protect their intellectual property, litigation, and corporate matters. He's also the author of many books. His first book was Living on the Happy Edge of Anarchy, which was an Amazon Top 3 new hot comedy release in 2013. His second book was called Dirty Quiet Money, a historical fiction novel um, that was recently released. And he's got another book coming out called The Naive Darlings of Outsiders – or sorry, The Naive Daring of Outsiders that's due out in 2016 – He's uh, he's quite the quite the writer, and he's walking us through some of his learnings of how not to just think either or binary. Welcome back, Ryan, to the show. Thanks, Matt. Great to have you. What um, I mean, part of the problem is we just we may be want to like slow down and not just do A or B, but it seems like some of us just flat out we're we're too we don't know how to be creative. We don't know how to think other ideas up yeah well i mean i think what it's a it's a uh you need to practice at it i mean it's something like what i for me for my writing and stuff i I play guitar and uh i screw up all the time i think a big part of being creative is making mistakes yeah allowing yourself to explore and having a sense of humor uh there's there's biological effects they've shown of having humor when you laugh your certain serotonin levels that go up and i think having a sense of humor about yourself and looking at yourself in an extreme way to see where you're kind of being extreme, I think is very helpful because it shows the kind of downfalls of your position. Yeah, it's so true. It's so true because if you can laugh at yourself, uh, then, then everything's not as rigid. It doesn't seem like everything has to always be about being rational. Sometimes being irrational is pretty funny. Well, I think, yeah, I think Einstein, the irrational mind is something we worship. It's really the intuitive mind that drives us, but we worship the servant, not the master. Yeah. So I think the irrational mind or the intuitive mind 
is really our best friend, but we oftentimes worship. I think we're a lot, living a lot more nowadays because of technology and our neocortex, which is the part of the brain that is like a computer, instead of really intuiting things and feeling people and feeling out uh, solutions, right? Yeah. We, we're stuck up in the, in the kind of, uh, and I think that, that gets rid of uh, humor. I think, you know, humor is one of the best, in my, in my counseling with people, when they come to me with some serious problem, like right now I have to talk to this guy later on, I, I make little jokes in there because it kind of loosens things up. And I think you're able to think more clearly. Yeah. I do the same thing with couples. I mean, they're on the verge of divorce, but if we can start lightening it up and, and at least recognizing our own part of the problem, uh, you not you get the chemicals flowing that, that come with, you know, the dopamine that comes with laughing and relaxing, but you also kind of allow other alternative ideas to come into the game. Right. I mean, there's a reason why Stalin, when he came to power, uh, he got rid of all the satirists and people that spoke different languages because... They can be very harmful to your system if you're trying to create a system where you want to be absolutely right and nobody, you want to be questioning you. Mm. And humorists are the ones that are, you know, satirists are very, uh, very effective because humor, it's like you're tricking somebody into thinking it's just funny. But, you know, and I've taught before, Matt. I taught at Brooklyn College. I taught at Junior College in New Orleans. And one thing they do like whenever I teach is I'm basically a joker. That's mm. all I do. I make jokes a lot, but, you know, I get the students to laugh and think I'm just some goofy guy. But down below, I'm actually teaching the, the lesson or whatever it is I'm trying to convey to them. So it's a kind of a subliminal way of conveying information. Yeah, you're like, you're, you're doing mind tricks. Exactly. You've got to be careful, right? Hey, uh, what, when you, as an attorney, you've sat down in a mediation or an alternative dispute resolution and sat there. Um, what are the ways that you get people to think? I mean, humor is one way. What's another way you get them to open up their thinking and get and, and improve their decision making? That's a good question. I think the best, I mean, what I try to do is tell stories or get people to, like, kind of commit to a situation, a hypothetical, where it's where they think it's so different than their own situation and agree with the perspective of that person in the hypothetical. And then I bring it back to their situation. I say, well, how can you agree with that? But yet here you're doing something hmm. totally different than what you think is right. Yeah. Right? But, but I do it, like you said, about being careful. Yeah, people have to be very careful of me because I'm very tricky. So I, I do things that seem very random, but they're not random at all. They're connected to the present situation, but I just have 50 steps between them. It's like playing chess, right? Mm-hmm. you got to like think of – I mean, writing a book is like a big chess game. It's like an algorithm, and you got to really think of the first words in your first part of your chapter relate to the last words in your last part of the chapter, but people don't see that. And I think it's the same with counseling, like in mediation or what have you. Yeah. Like the other night, I had, this, I had this very heated conversation with a client where I was doing something akin to that. Well, I've done that. So I've been a, a mediator and mediated divorces and and other uh, you know kind of business disputes. And a lot of times when they're dividing up, for example, the furniture and the goods of the house, mm-hmm. um, it's interesting if sometimes you just turn the game on them. So you know when they when they think or when they propose something in the mediation, a lot of times what I would do is just switch the deal. So if we did the mm-hmm. exact opposite. Would it be all right if your wife took 80% of the assets and left you with 80% of the debt? I mean, right. so just by spinning it and turning it back and saying, how, how would that feel for you? Um, it, it, sometimes that just opens up their mind too, huh? Yeah, I think also, yeah, I agree with you. And I think looking at ego and looking at like, you know, are you going to take it with you when you're in the dirt? You right. know, when you're under the ground, are you going to have this stuff? If you're fighting over assets with, you know, with children and the children are crying and you know, I, you know, wh- wh- where are you going with all this? And I think another thing I try to do with uh, mediation and, and, and going between sides is 
is, you know, you have the binary situation, and the dirt road represents not only a, meet, a meeting a place where people can go and meet kind of a backdoor diplomacy. We don't need to look good or worry about saving face. But also, when in binary situations, Matt, you know, you're negotiating with somebody else. And if I come to you and say, listen, if you guys don't stamp this out by Friday, then both of you guys are off the list. Hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's, it's like coming to a situation where both parties think they're so powerful and that they're only two players, but there's, there's sometimes a third party, which is in the dirt road, which might be anonymous. I'm not the group anonymous, but, you know, you might not know who they are. And they might be more powerful than both your parties. And they might come and say, listen, you guys need to play nice. I used to teach when I was younger with kids. And I would say to the kids in the sandbox, listen, if you guys can't play nice together in the sandbox, then both of you guys are, you know, you have a timeout from the sandbox. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? See, I um, have you ever heard of the, and sometimes it's possible, sometimes it's not, to do the win-win or no deal, where if, if I can't find a win that's good for me and for you, then let's just agree not to do the deal. I don't right. want to hurt you. Right. So I'd rather I'd rather enter the agreement with you thinking that let's just let's just make it fair for both of us or let's not do the deal. Right, exactly. And that's the sandbox example. If yeah. you can't play with Johnny in the in the sandbox, then both of you guys can't be in the sandbox. Yeah, let's just agree not to play let's just agree not to play in the sandbox. But sometimes it needs a third you need that third party. Yeah. I think my friend calls him the a beneficent dictator, I guess. Yeah. But you know, so sometimes you have to be that way with kids. But you know, kids we grow up to as adults and we have a lot of the same problems as we get become adults. So in the end, Ryan, as you think about this, and you've you've thought about it a lot, and especially because you're in a profession that that tends to be really good at it. Um, what what would you say is the one thing that the rest of us can do to make sure we don't just naturally get sucked in to the the binary choice? I think plan. I think uh, like my grandfather, my mom, my grandma's side was uh, a, a professor of physics at the University of Heidelberg. In Germany, mm-hmm. and one of the things I've, I've tried, and trust me, I used, I've done a lot of dumb things, and I'm becoming less dumb, but I'm still, <laughs> I sell my faults. And one of the things I, I've discovered is in planning and kind of just taking a, a breath, some deep breaths, going for a bike ride, doing something that is totally different than what you're trying to do. So if you're trying to do your taxes or you're trying to figure out some problem, doing something that's completely different and so far-fetched from what you're doing is helpful to loosen your brain so you see other options. Mm-hmm. Like in my characters and my writing, a lot of times I'll take a bike ride or I'll let the thing sit for a while and do something totally different. There's then other ideas come to my mind that unre- when you're doing something unrelated to what you're doing, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, totally. Step away and allow other things in. That's when I was getting uh, my doctorate, I found that by studying, it would you know drive me crazy. Um, and then but it'd get my mind thinking, but then I'd have to go practice in my practice to make a living. So, mm-hmm. and, and by doing both simultaneously, it was giving me this space to, to learn and to be more creative. And I could actually apply what I was thinking um, in my real day-to-day life. It's, um, it, and also, I guess, having a lot of different things, right? Like, right? like you were saying, getting out, taking a bike ride is so different than writing, but it might create some space, give you some some other fodder to throw into the to the mix. Yeah, and I think also, Matt, another benefit of it is if you see the world generally as gray and there's outliers, which are binary situations, which are fight or flight, then, you know, when you do come to a binary situation, your body isn't going to be so worn down from always thinking in the binary. Mm-hmm. You're actually going to, if you, like, for instance, if you have a, a fight or some type of, you know, a zero-sum game situation, you're getting more focused. It's kind of like the the Eastern way of thinking, right? I mean, right. I used to watch a lot of Bruce Lee movies when I was younger, but, you know, you focus all of your energy on one target, and then you're going to hit that target better because then you know it's 
this is a real binary situation. It's not like a, a made-up gray. It's yeah. not a made-up binary, right? It, it's like it's a serious situation. And then you and then you know we have to fight like Genghis Khan, right? <laughs> and there's just like – then it's like serious business. Yeah. I think that's fascinating. And two, it's what's what's cool is the more effective you are at dealing with, you know, the gray space, the more options you start to see. Like as a mediator, I started noticing that there were 50 options for how to do, you know, a a custody plan with your partner if you're divorcing or how to divide up assets. There's there's a never-ending amount of ways to divide things up. And um, then all of a sudden, once you start seeing more and more options – then it just gets clearer that, that there's no end to the options. So what that's I guess right. what happens is you get better at it, don't you? That's right. That's right. It takes practice, and I think the more options you see, the more likely – I mean, the more – so when you're presented with a binary situation like, you know, we have to do this deal, we're going to war, you know, if you think about – you use your imagination and think about the, the characters at play, there's like a lot of other situations that haven't been explored or presented to people, but yet people think of them – think of it as a zero or one situation, which yeah. is a false dichotomy. Always, right? I mean, very rarely is it going to hit the zero or the one. It's somewhere well, else. Something is very rare. Yeah. When we were fighting the Germans and they were taking over Poland, and you know, right when they went to Poland, uh, you know, the French and the English were kind of appeasing the Germans. But that was a situation where they should have just been taken out. Right. But you know, and that's a zero. That's a zero-sum game situation where he's obviously thinking that way. There's no way of talking with Hitler. Mm. So you know, either you just take him out, or he's going to take over the world. Yeah. So I mean, that's just, that's just, you know that's. That's just dealing with a situation where you are damn right at the binary situation, right. and then you have to be prepared for that. Yeah, and, and be strong enough to, to make the decision. Uh, well, Ryan, we appreciate you, man. It's great work. Um, again, the the name of the article is um, The Good, the Bad, and Ugly of Binary Thinking. And where can they find more out about you, Ryan? Um, I mean, you can go to my law practice website, L and A. It's Lambda, like Lambda, Lambda, Lambda. Kind of remain that the revenge of the nerd, but L A N D A Landa P L L C dot com. Uh, I also have a Facebook page for my author stuff. That's just Ryan E Long uh, Facebook. Um, so those are my two hats right now, Matt, awesome. uh, authoring and an attorney guy. So. That's right. Well, you're doing great. Keep up the great work, Ryan, and uh, appreciate the insight on binary thinking. We'll take a break, my friends. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends. Hey, uh, did you hear, as we're speaking of, you know, binary thinking or ways to think out of the box, Lexington, Kentucky. This is a pretty cool idea. Uh, Lexington, Kentucky has launched a new um, annual food drive, which allows motorists to pay tickets in canned food instead of cash. (laughs) Was that a can rolling and then turning into money? Apparently it was. Lexington parking tickets can be paid with donations of canned food instead of cash during a month-long Food for Fines program. The city's parking authority will accept cans for citations from November 16th to December 18th. Those who donate 10 canned food items will receive a $15 credit on citations. That's pretty cool. I wonder if you can pay early for tickets you're assuming you're going to get. Oh, yeah, prepay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I bet you can. Then you can just go buy a, you know, go to the case lot sale, buy a whole case of canned goods. 
And then you can speed whenever you want. You actually can use uh, – like if you have multiple fines, you get a $15 credit by bringing 10 cans for each fine. So you could bring you know, a case of food and that might get rid of you know three tickets. But you can't – you only get $15 toward the ticket. So if the ticket's $20, you still got to pay a $5 fine. So you can't pay for the whole ticket with yeah. your can. It's not like Cole's cash. Okay. Where you can just cash it out with you know your free money. I was mad. This doesn't cover speeding tickets. <laughs> no. It's parking tickets. Really? No. Oh. You're like, oh, yeah. The speeding tickets are expensive. Yeah, yeah. They, they ought to make it so if you get a speeding ticket, you bring you know like a really nice ham, Ooh, or a yeah. big turkey, right? Yeah, a big butterball. At least a fifteen pound. Yeah, like if yeah. you ever like heard someone say, "Man, how much was your ticket?" I don't know. It was like three butterballs. No, never heard that before. And a Hormel ham. Interesting. When I was in junior high, yeah. we had a homeroom. Yeah. And it was in the gym because oh it was a PE teacher. It always is. Yeah. We we gave canned foods and we got to play basketball every day. See how that works. That's the way it's supposed to be. That's how it works. We'll take a break, folks. Hour number the one of the Matt Townsend Show. It's in the can. So to Pun speak. intended. We'll be right back. Yeah, the teacher actually lost track. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Happy Unfriend Day. Today is the day we unfriend Friends. According to Oxford Dictionary 2009, uh, the word of the year was, in fact, unfriend, which defines as a, is defined as a verb to remove someone as a friend on social networking sites such as Facebook. And then comedian Jimmy Kimmel, Kimmel, Jimmy Kimmel founded Unfriend Day in 2014 to huh. combat the growing trend of social media profiles collecting friends like the Pokemon cards – Amassing a ridiculous amount of friends they barely know at all short periods of time. All, all in short periods of time. When you see people's Facebook profile and they're, they're an individual, they're not a – they have like fan pages yeah. where people can jump on. You have one, I, I believe. I have a fan page. Huge. Um, well, when you see an individual <laughs> and they have like 1,300 people that follow them or something, mm-hmm. or actually like thousands of people, yeah. not 1,300, but thousands. You're like, really? How many people do they know? Right. How many people? I mean, they don't know any of them. These are just people that are following you for whatever reason but, and, and friend. But like on. my fan page is different because they follow me because they love my dimples. Meme. They love my dimples. <laughs> they do love my dimples. They love my memes. Right. We we're a meme factory. Meme factory. We send out really cool quote memes that you then grab and throw out and change the all your friends with. Change their life with this Change one. their life. I mean, sure, it's a little annoying when you get a meme. But we're a meme factory. Um, but, yeah, I agree. The, today's the day that you go through your friends in your personal site and you get rid of the people you don't know. It's called curation. Just go through, mm-hmm. move the people off. There's a point where you know, maybe that person – isn't quite performing yeah. to the level that you need your Facebook pro Facebook newsfeed to be, and they're messing it up. Take them well, out. Well, no, but now they have all these tools that you can tell who's unfriending you. Well, they have if you uh, if you unfollow, 
See, this is yeah. the thing Facebook did recently, or recently, I don't know how long ago, but if you hit unfollow, uh-huh. then it, you don't see them. Right. They're just off to the side. You're still friends, but you but don't like, get to see anything. On my fan page, I can see who unfollows me. So that's how we know if we're being too intrusive oh. by sending out too many things. They'll unfollow us. But you can also go get other apps that will be able to tell you who – what pages they're looking at on your Facebook? Okay. How long they're so don't how use long Facebook they're stalking you? By it's you scary. by you stalking them. Mm-hmm. Mm. It's scary. So now people like my wife's like, well, I don't want to unfriend them because they'll they'll know I unfriended them. Yeah. And I'm like, well, yeah, but you're really actually not friends. Right. But if you just unfollow, yeah, then they're still your friend. That's what I've done with my entire family. And then, yeah, <laughs> Th- then they're just yeah. <laughs> Okay, that's a really well, bad admission. I have a list of my family, so I can click on the list uh-huh. and see everything they're doing, but they're not in my news feed, so yeah. I can actually see news, which so you, is what I want. Well, yeah, what you want is not your family. We understand. None to a real extent, yeah, pretty much. Which, by the way, goes hand-in-hand hand with another day today. Today is also Take a Hike Day, Yeah, which is what you're trying Let's to- Take a hike. Take a hike. That's what my family tells me. Take it's a either hike. about go it's either about going on an exhilarating walk or telling somebody to get lost, which you can do apparently by just unfollowing them so they won't be in your feed. My mom called me the other day and she goes, Talk to your wife. Look at her Facebook feed, because I know you're not going to see it on yours. <laughs> and look at what I posted. Was it a meme from me? I don't know what it was. Tell your mom to I follow just my, my memes. Wife look at I've it. got more memes that'll change her life. Oh, she follows. And you. then she can put it all on her. I- I get a phone call every once in a while. Ooh, I saw this from Matt today. I think what we need to do is send – have your mom just start emailing you daily. She could. A daily email. Yeah. So it, she's listening. Here's what's going on. Mama South. <laughs> Did you hear about this poor guy in Florida? So imagine that you're out just doing yard work. No big deal. Just mowing the lawn. Mowing the lawn. And out of nowhere, a seven-foot, seven-inch gator jumps out and chomps down on this guy's arm. Oh, God. I know. You're just mowing the lawn, and the next thing you know, he says, all of a sudden, I just had pressure. No splash, no nothing. Then I got up like this, and it splashed right there, and he starts He's really descriptive. It. Yeah, he really is. Um, William Bouchard is his name. He said, I was pulling weeds like this, and he came up right there, and he grabbed me. But no splash at first, just pressure. Man, last time I was last time I was bit by a, a, an alligator. That's mm. what I felt. Pressure. Really? Lots of pressure. You can relate. Oh. I was bit by a dog once, with no teeth. Tons of pressure. Wow. Tons of pressure. Dog with no teeth. In fact, I bruised. I bruised very easily. Mm. I bruised, and I had a bruise that looked like a perfect like bagel. I had mm. a bagel, a purple bagel bruise on my leg. Something you can show off. Yeah, it was scary. I mean, I was gummed, severely gummed. Yeah, Florida has a problem with uh, alligators and snakes and exotic animals. It took about three hours to trap that poor gator. And let's just say now, Mr. Bouchard has a brand new pair of gator boots. <laughs> gator leather. So he still has his arm, right? He's still got his arm. He says he won't weed again. But uh, he, he is, he, the, the gator had to be euthanized. Because once they get a taste of Bouchard, you can't go back. You know what wow. I mean? Wow, yeah. No, not really. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I get the idea of an animal attack, but alligator? Eh, yeah. It's a bit much. That's something that can pull you down and yeah. 
drowned you. You got to watch like out. To do. That's why we're lucky in Utah. We don't have gators. No, we have bears. Not too many though. Bears. I think the biggest threat to my life would be a deer. Something coming out of the mountains to find I, food lower. No, and I think the biggest threat to your life is that you just offended your family well, earlier, and you're about to go to they a know. family dinner. They know. I just check your food when you at the family dinner. It's fine. We'll like see. my brother and I, we have this open pack. We don't follow each other. Yeah, yeah. We're fine. We're on Twitter. We can, we see each other on Twitter, not on Facebook. But brothers, that's a little bit different. Mothers yeah. and mothers. Well, I I told my mom if she didn't share so many things, I I may consider following her. But it's just whoa, overshare. She's your mother, Terry. <laughs> She's your mother for Pete's sake. This is nothing she hasn't heard. <laughs> You're a monster. <laughs> I am. Yes, you I are. Am. Let's go to the headlines, Terry. You got any headlines from around the world? I do. Thanks, Matt. The intelligence community is raising concerns over their ability to track how terrorists communicate. New encryption technologies may have helped the Paris attackers hide their plans. Some are blaming Edward Snowden's NSA leak for revealing government surveillance methods that could help terrorists to avoid detection. Here's U.S. Senator Dianne Feinstein. I think that Silicon Valley has to take a look at their products um, because if you create a product that allows evil monsters to communicate in this way, that's a big problem. Senator Feinstein asked many of the big tech companies for help as, and says they're not cooperating. The tech companies say they're protecting the privacy of their customers from the overreach of government surveillance. This has been going on for a while. It will continue. Hackers Collective, known as Anonymous, they say it too is at war with ISIS. In a series of messages posted to Twitter and YouTube, Anonymous claims to be preparing to unleash waves of attacks on ISIS. In a video on YouTube, a masked activist speaking in French announced, expect massive cyber attacks, war is declared, get prepared, Anonymous from all over the world will hunt you down. Those operating under the anonymous banner have focused in the past on disrupting ISIS's social media recruitment efforts and could try to target the group's other communication networks. One anonymous tweet Monday claimed the group had taken down more than 3,800 pro-ISIS Twitter accounts. That Quick, is cool. Quickly replaced by 6,000 pro-ISIS Twitter accounts. I mean, I mean, imagine what anonymous can do. This oh, could yeah. be great. Yeah, they're not handcuffed by any rules. Yeah, because well, they were involved in another one recently. What was the other thing that they got? Uh, it was members of the clue, uh, uh, the, the Ku KKK. Klux, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. But, <laughs> but then that got kind of weird because they released it and people, you know, government officials instantly holding press conference to say that I'm not in the Klan. I'm not in the Klan. I was just buying some sheets <laughs> at the Walmart. <laughs> so that, but they, oh, they, they could be a force for good. Yeah. Well, well, yeah. well, I mean, at least Possibly. on the terrorist front. Yes, they, they, they've done other things. Senator Ted Cruz said Sunday it's lunacy to allow Muslim refugees fleeing Syria into the United States, but says that the border should be open for Christians. There is no meaningful risk of Christians committing acts of terror, he told reporters Sunday. If there were a group of radical Christians pledging to murder anyone who had a different religious view than they, we would have a different national security situation. Hmm. Yeah. So uh, he told uh, Fox News that Syrian refugees should be allowed to settle in the U.S. And this was in 2014. The Christians. No, this was last year. Okay, okay. Cruz said in 2014, Cruz told Fox News that Syrian refugees should be allowed to settle in the U.S. The Washington Post reports, but now he says they should go to countries in the Middle East with Muslim majorities. You know, yeah. This is the binary thinking. We just had a whole hour on in a last speech hour. in a speech Monday closing the G20 summit. President Obama 
criticize Republican presidential candidates who have said they want to close U.S. borders to Syrian refugees unless they are Christian. He goes, when I hear folks say that, maybe we should just admit the Christians but not the Muslims. When I hear political leaders suggesting there should be a religious test for which person fleeing a war-torn country is admitted, that's shameful. That's not American. That was the president's sure. thoughts there. And on and in a, a closing note here, Islamic State fighters in need of technical assistance have a place to turn. A so-called jihadi help desk staffed of five or six key senior operatives available to answer the most mundane questions 24-7. Aaron F. Brantley, a counterterrorism analyst at the Combating Terrorist, Terrorism Center, an independent research organization in the United States, uh, affiliated with West Point, told NBC News that it's fairly large, robust community with technical experts who have studied information technology in universities and graduate schools. They help ISIS fighters learn how to use encryption and other secure communication methods so they can operate under the radar and post links to manuals and how-to guides on Twitter. Hmm. So as we're talking about encryption and technologies and what what you know phones they're using to you know pull out terrorist acts like this, they apparently have like a technical help desk, IT desk. <laughs> you can call IT if you're a jihadi and figure out I wonder how to do if, the things. You I need wonder to do. if the IT is driven crazy in in a jihadist group, as crazy as they are, just like at BYU broadcasting. Could be. Because we're calling Chuck all the time. Yeah. Like, Chuck, come fix this. This is not working. Can I get another screen on my desk? Or we call Lynn all the time with technological difficulty. Uh, Lynn, can you come fix this or that? Yeah, interesting. Who would who would have thunk? So Jihadi IT mm. is a really booming business. Apparently, apparently they're they're ever expanding their technology. Oh my, which heavens. is scary. This is totally scary. Crazy stuff, folks. Isn't it a crazy world we live in? Hey, coming up next. We're going to have a guest uh, named Mandy Catrone who has a TED Talk that you really need to go uh, watch. We'll, we'll post it in our Twitter feed, at Dr. Matt Show. Um, fascinating story about 36 questions. She's done some research on a past study that, that claimed that if you sit and talk to one person and ask 36 questions face-to-face, there's a really high likelihood you could fall in love. So she tested it. And uh, actually fell in love. She's going to be telling us her story. Uh, It's an article that she wrote in the New York Times called To Fall in Love with Anyone, Do This. But the big uh, surprising learning wasn't the fact that she could fall in love. It was, you know, that falling in love is actually the easy part. Keeping the love may be a lot harder than any of us think. We'll take a break, folks. When we come back, we'll be talking with Mandy Catrone about uh, the 36 questions to help you fall in love with anyone This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Have you ever played 20 Questions? You know, you ask the question to figure out what the other person has in mind. What if I told you that there was a study done that had 36 questions that would help you figure out what another person had in their heart and whether or not it was compatible with your uh, your own heart? Our guest today uh, is Mandy Catrone, and, and she's tried this study, this test, um, where it's you ask 36 questions to each other, uh, you talk, you then spend four minutes, I believe, uh, eye to eye, face-to-face, 
Um, and then it increases the likelihood that you'll fall in love. She did the test, folks, and she's here to report on it. She wrote an article in the New York Times um, that was titled, To Fall in Love with Anyone, Do This. The neat thing about Mandy's experience, though, is that she has found out that sometimes falling in love may be the easy part. It's it's staying in love that gets a little bit more complicated. Mandy Catrone, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Hi, thank you so much. How are you? Thank you for being with us. Um, I loved your TED Talk, and we'll put it on our our Twitter feed at Dr. Matt Show, uh, along with your your uh, your URL for your your WordPress blog. But it, it's such a great talk about this study. Talk to us about the study that you were replicating with the thirty six questions. So it's a study that was created in the nineties uh, by a social psychologist named Arthur Aaron, and essentially. He and some colleagues wanted to see if they could create closeness um, in the laboratory. And the cool thing about it is that it's been replicated by lots of different other psychologists and for people of different interest groups. So yeah. they've done it between like police officers and members of the community, and they've done it through for people from opposing political ideologies. Hmm. And it almost always seems to work. It doesn't always create romantic love, but it always creates this sense of closeness between the two people who try it. Yeah. Which is pretty neat. And it's 36 yeah. questions, and then you just ask each other the questions, and you answer the questions. Are, are you doing anything? You're just listening to each other while you're answering? You're just listening. Yeah. Wow, that's yeah. weird, isn't that's it? it. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it's like a, it, I mean, there might be something to this, Mandy. And so you did the test um, with yeah. a friend, an acquaintance, but he, what, you weren't close to this person. I mean, what was? how did you choose the person you chose to do it with? Well, so I knew him. Um, like, we had had a class together, and then um, I would run into him, like, at the gym. But I didn't know him very well at all. Hmm. Um, but I thought he was cute. Yeah. So I was like, Let's, it just naturally came up in conversation. And once it came up, I, you know, I said, I've always wanted to try it, hoping that he would like take the bait Mm -hmm. and he did. And so he did it. You are sneaky. A few months later. (laughs) No, that's cool. I mean, it really, and you have to go listen to the Ted talk because your explanation of it, this was, this was also scary too, right? Because you, you did, because you open up, this is a very vulnerable conversation you end up having. Mm Mm-hmm. Did, yeah, I mean, you by the end, I think it took us about three hours to get through all the questions, um, which is probably a little on the slow side. But by the end, I think, you know, you feel this sense of familiarity with this other person that goes sort of like, it's as if they're a very close friend, right? Hmm. So that's a pretty unusual thing to happen over the course of a few hours. Yeah. And then yours, um, and then, well, then then you went and wrote an article. Let's we'll come back to the uh, the rest of the that okay. story. Yeah. But you wrote the article in the New York Times. Um what what made you think about doing that? I mean because that really took this to the next level, didn't it? That changed everything. Uh, yeah. Well, I've been writing about romantic love for several years, which is how I found out about the study in the first place because I've just done tons of research. Um and I always thought I wanted to publish something in the Modern Love column because I knew that it's really widely read and people publish there and then get book deals and so i was like how do i get some attention on this book 
so I, I sent the article to them, um, and they published it about six weeks later. And I don't know, it was like instant. I mean, there was just no way that I could have predicted how big the response to the article <laughs> actually was. Like, it was insane. Um, it kind of took over my life for yeah. a month because it came out about three weeks before Valentine's Day. And so it just like, that was all anybody wanted to talk about. Oh, yeah. And then you were on all the morning shows. I mean, by that weekend, right? You were on the Today Show. They wanted you. Good yeah. morning, America. Yeah. Yeah, it was crazy. <laughs> Did. Um, and then there's one question that everybody kept asking, right? What was the question that everyone wanted to know? They wanted to know if we were still together. And what was interesting is that it wasn't just like the media asking this question. Like I would talk to editors who were interested in the book and they would say, okay, like we have lots of questions about your book, but first, <laughs> I'm just curious, like, are you guys still together? I mean, it was yeah. like everyone. So when, when did you do the study? When did you do the test? Uh, it was last July. So like July, 2014. Wow. Isn't that amazing? Mm-hmm. July, 2014. And, um, you then, you, you you dated the guy though, so you it actually it took. Yeah, I mean, we became very close friends first. Yeah, spent some time kind of um, figuring out the nature of our relationship. But you know, within I guess by October we were dating. Hmm. I mean, yeah. that's so that was last year. Yeah, yeah. So um, um, yeah, and then January I had published the article so it was very strange yeah what the talk ted talk is kind of about to be have like international attention on this relationship that was like four months old that was scary to me well i bet no yeah because it's raw it's it's fresh and you don't want anything to ruin it yeah and and you don't want to be in the relationship just to keep the you know the concept alive right exactly (laughs) yeah i mean it, it does do really well for the book but you want to be in a real loving relationship. Was this – did you notice that – did any of your baggage just from past relationships or fears from past relationships, was that messing with your mind too? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean I was in a relationship – I'm 34, so I was in a relationship from age like 20 to 30. And this relationship from the questions is the first serious relationship I've been in after that one. Yeah. So – you know, I don't know. It was, um, I, I just thought I, I want this to work out. <laughs> yeah. Don't blow it. Don't so blow I it. I don't want to, yeah. I don't want to go like parading him through the media, but luckily he's been a really good sport about all of it, which uh, is great. As, and, and you also made an, in, an attempt or I mean a, an intentional act of, you didn't use pictures of him. You didn't really talk a lot about him. You didn't, you didn't make him too much of the story. Yeah, and I was worried that he would feel like I was trying to hide him. Yeah, <laughs> but I was also worried that he would feel like overexposed. <laughs> so I just I couldn't figure out the right way to handle it. But um, it worked out really well. Like he just said, you know, do whatever you want, um, and he was super supportive. What a great so guy! Great. Now, He's are you are, are you yeah. you're, are you still with him? Yeah. Oh my heavens! Still together. <laughs> so this thing worked. Well, I mean. It, you know, it does work. There's like, I have no idea if we're going to like get married and have babies. But like what I can say is 
it creates a sense of trust. I mean, more than anything, it's like, I felt like, oh, I, I can really trust this person. And even before we started dating, when we just had this friendship, I thought, you know, if we have a romantic relationship, great. If we don't, we have this great friendship, that's great. I just have never felt so relaxed mm. going into a relationship because I think doing that study, doing those questions really enabled me to just say, like, whatever happens, like, I'm just glad to have this person in my life. Yeah. And that was really cool. I mean, it's closeness is really what that study is about. And isn't it interesting that um, it's all you need sometimes is a chance to get close with somebody uh, and then things naturally happen. Yeah. And a lot of times we force it another way, right? The idea is that that study accelerates that process, right? Like normally that would take a couple months maybe, Mm -hmm. and the study is designed to make it take a couple hours. That's such a great – I mean – I, I do a lot of relationship coaching, and I and I've done a lot of the eye to eye stuff, and it does the, just the eye to eye creates closeness. But to also have that much information behind the eye to eye would be really powerful. Um, yeah. Let's do this. Let's take a break and come back, Mandy. When we come back, I'd love you to teach us. You've you've learned that maybe the falling in love is, is a little easier, maybe than the actual staying in love. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I want you to I want you to come back and just teach us or just you know inform us as to a lot of your learnings from this great study. Again, Mandy Catrone is her name, and you can find her. Um, you can go to the Love Story Project. dot ca is one place to get uh, information about her. Um, she she wrote the article, folks. The article in the New York Times: To fall in love with anyone, do this. Uh, it's interesting information. You can also follow her on Twitter, at Len Mandy, at Len Mandy. And uh, we'll come back and continue to find out what uh, Mandy has learned about love and staying in love. Simple little test, folks. 36 questions. Bada boom, bada bing. Next thing you know, you're in love. We'll take a break. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. To the Matt Townsend Show, we're speaking with Mandy Catrone, who um, is uh, the author of the article "To Fall in Love with Anyone, Do This." It was published in the New York Times, and Mandy um, teaches English and creative writing at the University of British Columbia. She did a test uh, that uh, Dr. Ar- Arthur Aaron um, had set out in the '90s. That was basically 36 questions to help you create closeness with another person. And uh, she just went through the questions and and found a, a friend and a, a, an acquaintance, somebody she knew but thought was cute. And um, anyway, that was just added by me. And she then sat down, did the 36 questions, talked for about three hours, did a little eye-to-eye activity for about four minutes, and bada-boom, bada-bing, they got closer. And then over time, they eventually started dating, and they've now been dating for a year. Mandy, welcome back to the show. Thank you. That's it's a pretty neat story. I mean, you weren't you were testing it, 
but you were also really scared. I mean, you were afraid. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely a certain amount of vulnerability involved in the whole process, and I think that always feels scary. Yeah. Teach us what you've been learning since. I mean, it's one thing to like have the magical, you know, fall in love with 36 questions moment um, or fall in a deep closeness with somebody. But what are you learning about love since then? And and I'm assuming you're writing a book on this whole experience, right? Uh, somewhat. So the book is about love stories. So basically it's like a collection of essays and each one just considers the role of love stories in our culture in mm. different ways. So it's part research and part memoir and part like family mythology, like my parents' story, my grandparents' story. But essentially, like I think love stories um, have a pretty big impact on the way we think about love. And yeah. I think maybe that's not always a good thing. Um, I don't, I'm not convinced that they make us better at being in love. And so I want to understand like how they work and what their role is in our culture and um, and so with all of this in mind, I noticed that, that there's like a certain ironic <laughs> juxtaposition when I'm like writing this book that's pretty <laughs> critical of how love stories work. And yeah. then my own love story becomes this like sort of mythic thing. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, when I was writing my TED talk, I wanted to kind of counter that a little bit. You know, I, people wanted the short version of the story, which was like, you fell in love. Are you still in love? If the answer is yes, then the study works. And I just wanted to say like, well, it's actually a lot more complicated than that. And I, you know, I think we're too willing to settle for that short version Mm -hmm. of the story in our culture. And we would all really benefit from slowing down and like thinking about love with more complexity. Yeah. We like the fairy tale version, don't we? And they lived happily ever after. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so that's, I guess that's a good way to summarize my TED Talk is like, let's not cut to the happily ever after. I mean, otherwise you miss all, really, all of the experiences. We don't just want, we we don't want the outcome. We want everything, don't we? Because it seems like it's what makes the outcome valuable. Yeah. And, you know, I would even argue, like, maybe there is no outcome, right? Interesting, yeah. once you're, like, committed to someone, there are no guarantees about the kind Mm -hmm. of future that you're going to have together. Um, We can be very hopeful and we can make lots of very serious commitments, but, you know, all kinds of things change and you kind of never know what what the future holds. Yeah. I think that's – and that's a – that's a big – I guess that's one of the keys to this is our fear um, might also impede because we could become so worried about no guarantees that we we actually could ruin the seed of love. You know, we Potentially. Could, you know, yeah. Micromanage it or we could be so loose about it that we don't show enough attention to. I mean it can kind of go either way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Absolutely. What what are you learning now that you're a year into this or more as far as far as the relationship goes what else do you notice uh is 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 adding to the you know the story that makes it maybe more of a even more of an iconic ironic love story than you <laughs> thought it would be and what are the things that are are some of your other learnings your watchouts Yeah I mean So I just did another TED Talk on Sunday, so just two days ago. Um, And what I talked about in that talk, so it was 
um, not really related to the 36 questions, but I think has a lot of relevance just from my own experience in my relationship is metaphors that we talk about in love. And I think a lot of our metaphors are not very good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like we say things like love struck or like crushed or like lovesick. And it's interesting to me that all these metaphors really position us in these like really passive situations where love is this like powerful maybe even like a violent force <laughs> right. that, like, acts on us and we're sort of helpless to do anything about it. And so one of the things that I'm trying to do in my relationship now is uh, reject those ideas. So, you know, there's something about starting this relationship by doing the 36 questions. It's like really empowering. You feel like, oh, I created this. Um, you know, we really intentionally went into this relationship. It wasn't this thing that just happened and that I had no control over. Um, and so uh, these linguists uh, wrote this book called The Metaphors We Live By, and basically they argue, like, the language we use really does shape the way we think about the world. Mm. And so they suggest that there are better metaphors to use for love and that we could create a totally new mm. metaphor and there's this love as a collaborative work of art, which I think is just like the, a really cool idea. So like love is this thing that you make with this other person rather than this force that acts on you. Interesting. Yeah. That you have no control over. Yeah. So this is something that my partner and I talk about a lot, which is like, okay, um, how do we make this something that's like intentional and that we're doing together and that we're both really invested in? And it's just, you know, I mentioned like I was in a relationship for like 10 years mm-hmm. um, and that I was really young at the beginning of that relationship. And I think I did feel like I had no control. I was like, I love this person. There is nothing I can do about <laughs> it. And I, I acted very helpless about it. And so I'm trying to kind of do the opposite here, which is like, I love this person. I really care about him, but I want to invest in our relationship and think about what I can offer the relationship instead of like what I'm getting out of right. the relationship and how well that relationship is serving me. So it's more collaborative and less kind of individually oriented. I yeah. Guess. And less up to kind of fate. Like I hear clients mm-hmm. all the time tell me they fell out of love. And so I guess, yeah, I guess we just, I think it's such a strange that weird metaphor. Yeah. I mean, it's like, yeah. wow. Or, or, but in this case, so we didn't collaborate together on it, and we we kind yeah. of gave it up. I mean, it's yeah, so it's more empowering. The burden is on the individuals in uh-huh. the relationship, which I think is a better way to think about it. Well, yeah, it seems more empowering to have it be in your hands than just chemistries. Yeah. I mean, then yeah. it's just Cupid, some, some guy like... just shooting you. Right. Exactly. Right. It's a little lonely. Yeah. And I think some people feel like that's sort of unromantic, you know, that there's like, we want to feel like this powerful force is acting on us. Mm -hmm. But like, I think there's a nice balance that you can achieve Yeah, where it is powerful and it is profound, but it's also like not totally out of your control. Well, it is because look at even how yours started with a conversation. I mean, a conversation is collaborative. And yeah. one person offers something and the other has to receive it and be influenced by it. And then that creates another question or another answer. It is it is a give and a take. It's not just this outside influence that just makes you feel love. I like yeah. that too because I like the idea that it's something we have to keep working for. And I see it with my clients that if they have the paradigm that they've got to work for it, 
and keep working together on it and mm-hmm. giving and taking and 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 noticing and and adjusting and sacrificing at times and sometimes you you can't sacrifice and you're just you need to take um and so if it's if it's yeah. a give and take process all of a sudden it sudden it's it becomes ours instead of mine or yours or its yeah it's cool yeah yeah so that's the main thing i mean and it's like i said like it's is always hard. Like, yeah. Love is never easy. Um, but like, it's rewarding. So you know. I you know what? That's... It's a great. I think it's a great metaphor too. Just with. I mean, I uh, just became a grandfather, and oh, and I'm really young. Right. I'm I'm like 28. Um, it was weird, <laughs> but um, I don't, I'm not 28. I just look 28. I know. <laughs> but it's. I I look at it too, and it. But it's the same thing that. Um, we, I'm just enamored with this little grandbaby girl, and yet it's not just an emotion. It's this incredible relationship that's starting, and I can hardly wait to start collaborating more and more with her. But it, maybe that's a, a really important paradigm about all of our relationships. Yeah, maybe it is. Maybe it is. I mean, it's, it's an interesting way of thinking about no, it. Wild. Like you could apply this to any love relationship. Mm-hmm. But I, I'm glad that you've done the thinking for us, Mandy. Because <laughs> me too. We, we don't know. Like, we don't normally think we just this. Don't deep. talk about this. I know we don't, do we? In our culture, yeah, we just talk about love in these really narrow ways, and I think that's you know not doing us enough good. No, right? Yeah, we do. We it's always like it's a, a lot of times it's about the chemistry. A lot of times it's about the physicality of the relationship or mm-hmm. what you're receiving it's from not it. Like those things no. don't matter, mm. but. There's just, I think, more sophisticated ways of framing it. I agree. Man, is uh, what would you say as we kind of wrap this up? What would you say um, is your biggest learning from 36 questions, four minutes of eye contact to falling in love, and now where you're you're growing love? What what would you say is your biggest learning that we could all watch out for? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I mean, maybe it's just this week. Yeah, um, you know, I guess the the thing. I mean, it sounds this sounds super cheesy, but I think the biggest thing is like ugh, this is the thing. It makes me so uncomfortable to even say it. <laughs> just say <laughs> but it. it. Really, like <laughs> the best thing that you can do in a relationship for yourself is just to like totally put yourself out there. I mean, I struggle with this a lot Mm -hmm. and I think probably I always will, but I feel like the thing that ultimately you will regret the least in the span of your life, is just, you know, like saying like, you're really important to me. I really care about you. I'm going to totally invest myself in you and trust you and see what happens, which is, you know, I don't know. I'm always saying like, that's the thing, and that's the thing that you need to do because, is it like I have this strong impulse to like towards self protection yeah. and love, yeah, um, right? And and I think you know I have to fight that impulse constantly, mm. and that serves the relationship the best. Is like, you know, I'm trusting you, and it's not like I. The thing that I don't want to do is say like. I can't imagine my life without you because I can right, right. imagine my life without my partner and it would be a good life. And I don't want to lose him. Like I want him in my life. And yet at the same time, like 
I'll be okay without him. But I just like, I'm just trusting him. I'm just saying like, let's do this. Let's see what happens. Um, and I just have to do that like over and over and over again. <laughs> no, I think that that is, I think the key to intimacy is risk, right? You got to risk. Mm-hmm. And then, and yeah. that creates the vulnerability. And then they've got to commit and, and, you know, honor the risk or it becomes painful. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's yeah. a great that's a great lesson. I think for all of us, and I think a lot of us. What's great about your work, Mandy, is you're very open about where you're vulnerable. Like, you know, you you come at it from a little more fear, and that's good because a lot of people do it the same way, and they they need well, a the spokesperson. Last thing I want to do is be like, I know a lot about this. Yeah, you I'm a pro. Take advice <laughs> because I'm not. Yeah. you know, but I just have spend a lot of time thinking about it but I think because it's scary to me mm-hmm. that I'm like what's going on here and I think it's like we should be talking about it more so I try to be as honest as I can I love it and it's the most important I mean think about it it's really one of the most important things we do is this yeah. is this love yeah. thing and yet we hardly talk about it really we talk about that like beginning magical stage uh-huh. And we don't talk about much else. And I think, you know, that we're doing ourselves a disservice with that. So I'm trying to, like, start a more bigger dialogue. That's great. Mandy, appreciate you. Keep up the great dialoguing because I really – I think it's helping lives. And, um, again, go to her website, Mandy Len, L-E-N, Catron, C-A-T-R-O-N, dot WordPress dot com. Uh, MandyLenCatrone.wordpress.com. You can also go right to um, her other website uh, that is on love. What's it called? The Love Story Project. So if you go to thelovestoryproject.ca, you can uh, get information and articles from Mandy Catrone. We appreciate her work and uh, all of us. Seriously, great lessons in love, great lessons in um, learning and and just figuring out that it's it's a risky endeavor, isn't it? But uh, it, it might be really important to remember that it starts with your conversations, your questions, your connection. Let's start it there and uh, be willing to risk a little bit more. Good stuff. We'll take a break, my friends. Come back. Uh, wrap up this second hour of the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. This is Dr. Matt Townsend right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back, everybody. Mm. Love me Nora Jones, I'm telling you. This is actually, I think, what love sounds like. I'm saying that to Ben. Oh, she's just butter. <laughs> okay. <sighs> Nora Jones. Anyway, um, 36 questions. I'm telling you, it's, it's about closeness, right? And in the work of um, Arthur Aaron, the, the study was about creating interpersonal closeness. And it works. 
sitting, talking, understanding intentionally where someone's coming from builds a healthier, happier relationship. It builds closeness. We all need it. Even you, Ben. We all need it. I know. It's hard. It's hard. Ben went on three dates this week. The past two weeks. Three dates the past two weeks. Don't get too excited. Uh, One was shopping with his mother. With a woman. (laughs) No, we don't call her the woman. We call her mom. Uh, The other was with your parole officer, also a female. I'm not completely sure if she's a female or a male. Okay. She's built kind of strong, but I counted it. It's good. I've counted. It doesn't matter. Uh, dating, all of that. We all fall in love, right? We fall in love. We have the that Twitter patient, the yearning, I call it. And everyone thinks that love is that yearning, that chemistry, that easy love that we all felt when we were first in love. But remember that that's chemical. Eventually, you move from yearning love to you have to earn love. Love eventually has to be earned. And it's earned by understanding, by communicating, by hearing what your partner needs, by losing yourself and getting into them, and then delivering on what they need. And a lot of times that doesn't come from getting what you want. Sometimes where you get the the real connection is when you give of yourself, when you lose yourself for someone else. That's where you fall in love. That's why having a child is so selfless, but it also can bring in so much love because you want to lose yourself to serve that person. So, you know, we're going to post the uh, the questions. We're going to go find them, post the questions from the research, the 36 questions. So if you want to go sit down and test it out with somebody you care about just to reignite the spark, bada boom, bada bing. It will not work with a parole officer, though. I mean, you might. They've actually done tests on police officers and community. That's it, folks. Hour number two. We'll take a break. We'll come back next hour. More tools, more ideas to help you find the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Welcome to the program. (sighs) Another hour of interesting insight, giving you the tools on the show to live longer, love stronger, lead a healthier, happier life. Man, we got a really cool guest coming up. A psychic, uh, the inventor of a psychic robot. A psychic robot. What if... You had a robot that could actually determine what your intention was. And then it could correct for you. Like, for example, how many times on the show have I said, I have I been saying something and, and Ben like has this intent to go push a button to support what I'm saying? Right. Yeah, like that was not my intent. It was not that you play crickets. But it was really fitting, I think. No. No, you weren't. 
Right. It was kind of like that psychic See, vibe this, of what was This is why we need needed. a psychic robot because a robot would have said, no, his intent was that you play like something really beautiful, like a choir singing, something amazing about what Matt is saying. So like right then, I just sent an intent. Now this, yeah, How no, about that? No. This is hold music, right? See, this is the problem is that Ben Please doesn't, ben doesn't get my intent. Shortly. He's but, like, but your this call is, like, is very important to this us. This is what I feel like the show is. This is like the perfect music for the show. Yeah. See, yeah, we got to work on this because this is why we have the disconnect. Please hold. Uh-huh. Your call is very important to us. Yeah, when is my insurance agent going to get back on? <laughs> How long does it take to look up my insurance number? I just want to know why the cable's out. What are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> See, my, you should... The robot would detect what my real intent was, and if it gets interrupted, it would naturally just take me to where I wanted to go. For example, where this would be useful, when I'm driving on the road and, I start, and I'm trying to turn, but I start sliding, my car would then know where my intent was to go. But see, That's I, important for the car to know that. I take you where you need to go, not where you want to go. Oh, thank you, Mr. Gretzky. I take you where I go. I skate where the puck is. No, where it's going, not where it is. Um, yeah, I'd rather you just take me where I want you to go. Anyway, this is why we need a psychic robot. Justin Horowitz will be talking to us about... We, we need one? We need one. Wow. We need a psychic robot, especially on this show. He is trying to get rid of me. Yeah, if we could have a psychic robot, then Ben could just go do his studies. He could just go work on his graduation. I mean, he's already eight years into this. Yeah, at some point you have to actually buckle down and study. Well, eight years, that's kind of relative. I mean, part of it's been on parole. Part of that's it's true. been that's true. in juvenile parole. detention. Yeah, part of it, yeah. Part of it, you really weren't even studying. You were being studied. <laughs> Let's be real. If we're going to be real about it. Um, so we'll be talking to Justin Horowitz and his great uh, invention of the psychic robot, which is it's going to change the world because now all of a sudden your devices can be a little more intuitive. They can sense where you were going, what you were trying to do. So, so when you're interrupted, where this really makes sense is like people that have prosthetic arms, oh. they're trying to do something and it gets interrupted with something else that maybe moves their arm. But their their arm and can still know what they were trying to do and go still make it happen. So something useful other than looking at my phone and saying my phone would know I wanted to go to Twitter. Yeah. And just opening it for me. Maybe, Probably yeah, not That's that. not going to happen, no. Okay. But more of an activity like when you're turning your car, your car and you're trying to just turn a right angle turn. Yeah. Your car should know you're trying to make a right angle turn. But if three quarters of the way through you hit a bump – it, your car still needs to make the right angle turn. Okay. But in some certain sense, yeah. technology and, and like uh, prosthetics and, and things like that, if you have to keep thinking it, then the person with the prosthetic has to keep rethinking the thing over again to make it do it. This just naturally converts it into what your intent was. So something useful, not Isn't that powerful? something with my phone. We live at a really cool time, cool day and age. So we'll get to Justin Horowitz in just a few minutes. But uh, other things going on um, – Chaos in the refugees, the Syrian refugees. Now nobody wants to let them in anywhere because these guys may be connected to terror. Correct. And the incident <sighs> that led people to think that they may be connected to terror is slowly being proven false because they right. had fake passports that have now – the same passport has shown up in two or three different locations. But what is being proven true is that the passports 
are illegitimate. Can't be trusted. They're, yeah, they're not legitimate. So the overreaching story of the governors and the, 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 and the 26 or so yeah. governors have come out and said they're not going to allow refugees in their states. And it's proving to kind of be a smart idea because we're not sure exactly how to verify the identity of each sure. of these people. Well, and then here's what everyone says. Well, hey, 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 trust us. We will verify. It's the government. Trust them. Right. And that's the problem. Is see, So this is what the problem is. When you finally can't trust government, then you start making claims like we don't want to let refugees in. And because the federal government will be the one that will be doing the verification. And these states don't trust the feds to do that. Mm-mm. And three of the governors are currently running for president. Yeah. And yeah. they will Chris someday. Christie's one that's like, I'm yes. going to protect New Jersey. He's going to protect New Jersey. Well, I mean, the reality is that it has to be verified. And another reality that we learned earlier, instead of just making this good or bad thinking, not making it binary, these people, four million of them, need help. And they're not all terrorists. No. They're not. We have to figure out how to sift them and well, find you, the ones that you are. You need a terrorist divining rod. You just need to like have one of those little water finder guys. Right. That's how it works. And you just run the little stick over the head of the terrorist and it should just bend down toward the terrorist. And then it comes back to the fact that the states really can't stop the federal government from bringing these yeah. refugees into the country. Well, so That's the other problem is do they not realize that once – you know, if Utah decides that they're going to bring in refugees – now, Utah hasn't joined this list yet. No, Utah is actually saying – the governor of Utah said that they are going to have refugees. But let's say – so they, they invite refugees to come in. Those refugees, I'm assuming, eventually would have a passport to then travel. Just make sure it's not that one guy. The U.S. That everyone right. else has. But when they travel the U.S., they're going to end up passing through some of these states that say we don't want yeah. these people. I just reading an article, S- similar sentiment just after World War II. Isn't that weird? This yeah. is why this is being compared to World War III. Yes. Because it's – the war is one thing. It's a hard thing to win. But it's it has a lot of parallels to World War II. And yet we have refugees galore, which are changing cultures, which are changing a lot of things. This is World War III. I'm going to put it out there. So in a, in a, in a sense, you, you'll see – Culture's changing, some shifts. People, mm-hmm. you get that social stress of we don't want our culture to change, but we may, you know, we want to be welcoming to people in need, but at the same time, don't change the way we do things. And oh, this is getting it crazy. It turns into a, a bigger mess yeah. down the road. But, you know, it, people can also grow from the, the exposure to new cultures, too. So, yeah. To see how that works. Good stuff. Good stuff. Let's get to the headlines. Anything else going on around the world? Along the same lines, Republican presidential hopeful Donald Trump suggested that in light of terrorist attacks carried out by the Islamic State in Paris and elsewhere, the U.S. should start thinking about shutting down mosques, which he said are the source of some of the absolute hatred. He goes, well, I would hate to do it, but it's something you're going to have to to strongly consider. Trump was on MSNBC's Morning Joe on Monday, adding that he knows some Muslims who are unbelievably great people. Trump went on to say as president, he would commit 10,000 troops to the fight, but he would also engage other countries for help. 
You look at some of these countries, they have no skin in the game, right. and they're the ones we're protecting. And I would tell other countries, it's time for you to get out and fight, and it's time for you to put up your troops, and it's time for you to put the so-called boots on the ground or put your people on the ground, because we're not going to continue to do this. Now, to be fair, the president of Paris said that they were going to be shutting down some of the radical mosques in their country. Right. For the time being, and Trump was asked about that, and that's why this was brought so up. So he didn't, that's just not a radical idea. Yeah, he's that like, Trump brought might up. be something we have to look at. Uh, in light of the Islamic State's terrorist attacks in Paris, Republican legislators are calling on the White House to implement more oversight in its plan to accept 10,000 refugees from Syria in the next year. This from Politico. Senator Jeff Sessions of Alabama is advocating reaching a pro- or attaching a provision to the spending bill for Congress, the most passed in December, that would change the U.S. plan on Syrian refugees and potentially force a government shutdown. President Obama has said Syrian refugees entering the U.S. will be thoroughly screened to weed out potential terrorists. So we could have a government shutdown if his plan goes through. Senator Bernie Sanders made it clear on Monday that he does not stand shoulder to shoulder with governors who have said the Syrian refugees are not welcome to settle in their states and Republican presidential candidates who believe that only Christian refugees should be allowed to come into the U.S. He says, I am disturbed by some of what I am hearing from my Republican colleagues. Uh, During these difficult times in America, we, we do not succumb to racism. We will not allow ourselves to be divided and succumb to Islamophobia. And while hundreds of thousands have lost everything, have nothing but the shirts on their backs, we will not turn our backs on the refugees. So you get Bernie Sanders' side of that. Uh, Good news for Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders. Apparently, voters don't care that they're old. The 2016 race (laughs) offers voters voters, candidates some several different generations. There are Gen Xers, Marco Rubio, Bobby Jindal. Mm -hmm. There are, they're each 44. Baby Boomers, Rand Paul, Martin O'Malley, they're both 52. And the old, as they're saying here, Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton, 69, 68, respectively. Bernie Sanders running at 74 as a member of the silent generation before born before 1945. Uh, Bernie, can you keep it down? Keep it silent, please. (laughs) Yeah, well, much has been made of the relative old age of the Democratic field. The new McClatchy Maris poll finds that voters aren't too worried about electing an elderly president. More than 7 in 10 voters see age as an advantage for the presidency, while fewer than a quarter are concerned about possible health risks. Interesting. So people see it as a plus. Yeah. How come nobody in this department sees my age as a plus? Would you like them to? Well, Ben's always like thinks I'm too old. All the producers are like making jokes about how old I am. You ask them to. That's kind of the theme of a segment that we do once a week. I never say, hey, make fun of my age. <laughs> and have you heard- you should respect your elders. The Oxford Dictionary chose a new word, a word of the year for what? 2015. What do you think? Uh um, fubber. No, fubber. Phone snubber. Right. We had that guest on about phone snubbing your mm-hmm. your your significant other. Um, no. What? The word of the year is an emoji. Is an emoji? Yes. What's the, the emoji? The crying from laughter or crying from happiness emoji. Oh, really? So happy face. With tears. Tears. Why is that? What's the, that? That's not a word. The Oxford Dictionary's word of the year is an emoji. That, that, that doesn't make sense. They conducted a a, uh, yeah. a survey with partner SwiftKey to determine the most popular emoji from around the world, and that one was found to be the winner, tears of joy or cries of laughter. And yes, there is huh. that problem. Of, they say it's a word, but it's a picture that's on your phone. It's an emoji. So, do, you think, do you think there's a way to verbally express emojis? Yes. It's called crying with tears coming down your face. 
that is how you express an emoji. But that's not verbally expressing an emoji. Is there? there... (laughs) That's verbal. And then the tears, you know, they're not verbal unless you hear drip, 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 like that. Okay, good. Any other questions for the doctor? I might just ask somebody else. Yeah, yeah. You might want to do that off air. Just go ask somebody else. Call your mom. She'll know. Uh, we're going to take a break, folks. When we come back, Justin Horowitz will be joining us. He is the uh, the researcher, the graduate research assistant in bioengineering that has found uh, – how do you put this? A mathematical algorithm that helps to read your intention. What was your intention? What did you intend to do? And what if your car actually responded to your intentions, not just – to your actions. Oh, crazy stuff. We'll be talking with Justin Horowitz and some of the uh, interesting benefits that come by being able to interpret or intuit what somebody is thinking or intending to do. It's interesting how many lives could be changed by one simple little invention. Stick with us. We'll be talking with him in just a minute. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. That's the killers. Oh, can you read my mind? You know what? I can't, but Justin Horowitz can. Our next guest, uh, how many times have you uh, in your life have you heard the phrase, that was not my intention? I wish I knew what she were thinking. Wouldn't life be a lot easier if we could all just read each other's minds? For example, have you ever been driving and made a wrong turn and thought, oh, I wish my, the car knew what I meant to do here? Well, there is a device out there that really can detect what you mean to do before you even do it. And uh, our next guest, Justin Horowitz, is a graduate research assistant in bioengineering. He is uh, joining us on the line. He is um, currently working and finishing a Ph.D. with Dr. James Patton at the Rehabilitation Institute of Chicago and uh, is about to defend his dissertation in mathematics and of human movement and intention in January of 2016. And here's the greatest news of all time. Justin Horowitz uh, and his wife just celebrated the birth of their first child, 10-pound baby boy born Saturday. His name is Henry. Justin, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Good morning, Matt. How are you? That is congratulations on having a 10-pound baby boy. Holy cow. Oh, I have congratulated my wife so many times. I was amazed. Everything about that process was just eye-opening. Isn't it beautiful? And we are just so lucky that he was born healthy. Yeah, I mean, that's a big kid. You know, you're lucky he was born because he would have just been driving in about another month. <laughs> Is, uh, I've been joking about that. I know. I bet you have. And your, and your wife's doing okay? She's healthy? She's doing okay. We've been very lucky to have a lot of support from friends and family. And, uh, you know, we were told had he been in there another minute and 10 seconds, it would have been an emergency, but they got him out even though his shoulder was stuck. And oh, wow. Everything's healthy. He's perfect in every way. Oh, I love it. Congratulations. And thank, thank heavens, you. huh? Um, as we, as we uh, talk about this, you have a really neat story. Um, your grandpa suffered a stroke. And you're a smart guy, you and you've been doing kind of bio, getting degrees in biomedical engineering, 
You had a BS and an MS in that from Washington University. But then your grandfather had a stroke during the last year of your program. So you choose to go – you went and got your PhD in um, – at, uh, at the University of Chicago, I guess. Is that right? It's the University of Illinois at Chicago. Okay. Uh, my advisor has uh, appointments with Northwestern and uh, UIC. But the lab itself is physically located at the Rehabilitation Institute, and that's – they're just amazing. They're hmm. far and away where you want to go if you have a stroke. And and is this – so then you came up with the psychic robot idea, and I guess was that connected to your desire to help your grandpa? It was. So my advisor, uh, he made a name for himself with a technology called error augmentation. And error augmentation is the idea that some of your mistakes are very important to how you move, but not all of them are. So what he could do is he could figure out which mistakes matter, amplify them, and help you identify them and learn to get rid of them. And he was finding with this technology that stroke patients were not only recovering faster, but recovering more than they would otherwise. Man. So you, yeah. you, you can actually, you can, you can actually expedite a recovery process by, by maximizing your understanding of what their intention was. Exactly. So, well, the thing is he had to prescribe to them the movement to make. He might say, okay, here's a target and reach for it, right? Right. So he has to tell you what to do to know what you should do. This technology extends on that by saying, well, make whatever movement you want. We'll figure out what the error is. Interesting. So the, so what you are calling a psychic robot is really kind of a mathematical algorithm that figures out what, let's say, your grandpa was intending to do, mm-hmm. and yet – and then your, your, your robot figures out what his goal was and helps him make it happen. Not only his goal, the path he meant to take, not just the goal, but the whole path. And that's important, like with the car example you gave before the break, where if you want to make a turn, well, maybe you want to make that turn and avoid a pothole. Mm-hmm. Maybe the first pothole hits you, but maybe you wanted to avoid that second one too. So if we know the whole path and not just that you're turning, then we can do things like this air augmentation that allow you to see everything. How powerful is? I mean, and how powerful for a recovering, uh, you know, stroke victim or stroke client or patient that now has the ability to actually have their intent understood exactly. Exactly. That is exactly ah. our hope is that once we know a person's intent, we can actually cancel or magnify the effects of their stroke. So when someone first has a stroke, it's really use it or lose it. But the more we can just keep them moving and then the more we can help them to understand what's happened to them and learn to overcome it, right, the more they get to keep, the more dignity, the more quality of life. How amazing. Is it, um, it, is it true? Can it do it without – like let's say the patient can't move and they're immobile. Can, can it still detect the intent of their, head, of their brain? I wish. Oh, not so there yet. The way this works is that it, uh, it takes information, information from movement, information from your environment, hmm. and it figures out from that information what you went to do. But the problem is if you're not moving, there's no information there and it can't right. do anything. But but man, imagine the day too that this is we're on the road. It sounds like to be able to really almost un like you. What did you say to cancel or magnify the effects of the stroke? I mean, like we're really going to yeah. nullify certain effects of the stroke. If the stroke you know makes us not move as fluidly as we want to, this technology could help us figure that out. That is exactly our hope. <laughs> 
Man. And does is your grandfather still alive? Uh, I'm sorry to say he passed many years ago. Oh. Uh, he His stroke left him without much dignity or quality of life. And mm. um, he passed, I think, two or three years after his stroke. And he, he had many strokes that followed it, many, many strokes. And he just never got back that function. And he was never happy with his progress. Yeah. That's one of the things that's really driven me to make sure nobody needs to have that experience again. Well, what a beautiful, like really tribute is that now because of his influence of that and that really traumatic bad moment for your family, other uh, other patients are going to have the benefit. How How beautiful. That's the hope is that we take this and we make it so that nobody has to go through what he went through and everyone gets back their dignity and quality of life as fast as we can give it to them. So teach us how it works and, and, and is it an actual robot and, and what, what do you do with this algorithm and with this technology? Well, there's two pieces to it. The robot in this case is a, sort of a general purpose robot. It looks very much like an industrial robot and it's very good at sensing where it is and what forces are being applied to it. And then it can render whatever forces we choose. So it's a very general thing. In the lab, we use it for everything from just measuring movement to trying to apply forces that will cancel some of the stroke patient's movement deficits. Hmm. Uh, but in this case, we programmed it to sense position and force and render some forces. And then the software component, which is really the psychic part, understands the body. It builds on some uh, technology that the Air Force developed for the space program that is just a really good model of the biomechanics of movement. And so what happens is it takes these things that it senses, it puts them through this model that the Air Force developed, and it solves it in sort of a novel way so that it can tell uh, not just, you know, how the force is propagating through the arm, but what you meant to do with that force. Hmm. And then uh, we can do everything from putting your intention on screen to doing further processing on it, and for instance, augmenting or canceling your errors. Man. And does it – so like let's say – put it in the example of a, a stroke patient that is trying yep. to get a cup of water off of the counter. Yes. What would it do? Generally, uh, many movement problems come with stroke. One is that people have spasticity, which is just once they start moving, uh, when they get above a certain velocity, when they start moving too quick, then their muscles do strange things to them. Uh, when that happens, these are very unnatural movements. They're very detectable that spasticity has begun to happen. And so if we have a good model of spasticity, and there are many excellent models out there, then we can cancel the effects of that spasticity on the movement using an exoskeleton. So, so actually putting like an exoskeleton on the, on the patient, and if it starts turning, if, if they're reaching for the glass and they're turning on spasticity in their brain, then yep. the exoskeleton would actually correct that and help them maneuver their hand more, more smoothly. Right. And there are many good general purpose skeletons out there. It's just a matter of getting our software into them. Wow. Powerful. And then, I mean, I can imagine all the people with prosthetics, the military people returning home where they, they need to like find, use the fine motor skills better. And I'm assuming this could be very helpful with that. Yes. I mean, the prosthetics are uh, potentially one of the biggest areas and there's a lot of good work going on at RIC. But everything we can do to just combine the insights everyone is having, it just makes it better for the patients. I mean, this makes a whole idea. You're too young to remember this, but the the, the billion, what was it, the million dollar man? 
Um, Actually, I did watch The Bionic Man. Yeah. Do you remember him? I watched reruns of that on uh, the Sci-Fi Network. But, like, I mean, what's so amazing is your little baby Henry is going to grow up in a world, Justin, that's going to incorporate your your inventions. I mean, this is – he's going to have a completely different world if – when Henry – you know, is older and 90 or whatever and is is having medical issues, your advancements, Justin, are going to be changing his life dramatically. That is exactly the hope is just to have a better world for everyone. How cool is that? I mean, that's I mean, and you're you're about to graduate um, and then you need to go get a job, right? So anybody out there that's listening, you're available to be hired in January. I, I'm in talks right now that are sort of interesting, but nothing's been finalized. And I just look forward to the opportunity to get this technology into devices. That's cool. And, you know, of course, this first paper we've published is very promising, but we have more papers in review. There are extensions of this technology that we know about but haven't passed the peer review process hmm. that I think make it even more exciting. Holy cow. Okay, we're going to be looking for those. And when those come out, we'll have you back on, Justin. I look forward to it. That's awesome. Man, appreciate you. Thank you for your great work and uh, your willingness to just follow the prompting created by Grandpa. And good luck with Henry and your wife. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks, Justin. Take care. Man, great stuff. Are we lucky or what to be living in this day and age? I mean, obviously, it's chaotic. It's crazy. And yet, you know, we also have these inventions that will eventually be helping us adapt and heal from... um, from our problems as well. Interesting stuff. We'll take a break and we come back to a quick little check-in before we go to BYU Sports Nation. Find out what's coming up on their show at the top of the hour. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We will be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Man, to have technology that can read your intention, how great would that be? You know, when you intend to not change lanes, you intended to stay in the same lane, but instead, you know, you sneezed and you ended up three lanes over. How powerful would that be? As part of this, uh, we thought it would be interesting to figure out some ways that you might be able to be a better mind reader yourself without using a, you know, a psychic robot. What if you yourself could just read people better? And we found a, a little Psychology Today article about how to be a better mind reader. We've got about five or so points. Uh, these are five basic tools that any of us can use to have a better ability to read another person. Number one, get to know them better, right? Uh, We talked last hour about the 36 questions that you could ask somebody, and it would, you know, by talking through 36 questions, spending a little time looking into their eyes, you could have actually a better connection with them. If you know somebody better, and the more you know about them, the more you actually could probably read what their mind is or some of their intention, anyway. Another thing you could do is ask for feedback. One of the keys to all of this is getting feedback and having a feedback loop. But, uh, you know, ask somebody, what were you thinking? What were you trying to do right there? And if you can do it without being judgmental or being a jerk, you might be able to uh, get feedback. I mean, I mean, think about when you're trying to please your boss and 
you don't get any feedback, so you don't even know what your boss wants. A little feedback could go a long way for a lot of us. Pay attention to the upper part of the face. Uh, Phony social emotions tend to be expressed on the lower half of the face, while primary emotions leak out across the upper half of the face, mostly around the eyes, according to Kalen Prodan, a professor of neurology at the University of Oklahoma. So um, pay more attention to the eyes. The eyes don't lie, right? Uh, Another great way to be able to read the minds of others. Another way that you can be a mind reader is to be expressive. Emotional expressiveness is reciprocal. When we respond to others or when we show self-revelation, we tend to get more people that are being expressive back. When you're expressive, others express. And so it's a great way to get others to maybe pick up their game a little bit is by you going around and expressing more. I call it pinging, and um, I use it with my work a lot. Sometimes I'll walk into a room where a couple will be sitting, and I'll just say something like a silly like, hey, lovebirds, something cheesy like that. And if the couple really are mad at each other and they don't like each other, I will know instantly because of how they respond to what I said. If they roll their eyes and like, oh, what an idiot, then I know, uh uh-oh, this couple's pretty intense. Um, but if they laugh and they giggle and they smile, then I know a lot about them simply by me sending out a, an, an emotional expression. And last but not least, relax. Relax. When you are relaxed, you're much more able to read the vibes of others. That's why I'm so good at reading Ben as I look across the board here. False. Anyway, uh, don't worry about him. He uh, he. He, he would just was sleeping. He didn't even know what I was talking about. Um, so just relax. Relax. And just let in more information. When you're relaxed, you're going to pick up more information. Watch their eyes. Get to know them better. Ask for feedback. Be expressive and relax. You can find that article on Psychology Today, How to Be a Better Mind Reader. Um, let's just go practice one of those. Try to understand the people around you a little bit more. Right, Ben? False. We'll take a break. When we come back, our good buddies from BYU Sports Nation will be joining us, finding out what's going to be on their show at the top of the hour. Stick with us. A little update for you right here on The Matt Townsend Show. Help. I need somebody. Help. Not just anybody. Help. You know I need someone. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. We are going to uh, throw it down to our good buddies down there at BYU Sports Nation. Uh, Jerem Jordan, Jason Shepard joining us. Hello, gentlemen. What's up? How good are morning, you? Matt. Is, uh, How are we? Have you We're all re- have you recovered? That's what I'm thinking. Have you recovered from last night's like game? Emotionally, what's I'm, wearing, I'm wearing black today, Matt. What, what do you think? Morning. You're sad. Yes, I'm, I'm mourning. That was, that was a tough one. That will, and again, very few people know about it because it happened in the in the wee hours of the night. Yes, it did, and we both stayed up to watch it, and it ended at uh, two a.m. Mountain oh. time. Yeah. Are you and kidding? One, yeah. What, they lost. BYU early. lost to Long Beach State uh, by one point, sixty-six to sixty-five. Yeah, disappointing loss for the Cougars. Turned it, it over twenty-four times, oh, went eight of twenty-one from the free throw line. Scored one point in the last two and a half minutes. Oh. It, it was it was tough because the defense played well. They gave up 66 points. Long Beach State shot 31%. 
uh, BYU's plus 12 in, the, in boards. Only allowed one point in the last 321, yet lost. And so BYU played really poorly, but lost by one. There's no solace in this. There's no moral victory. It just stinks. Stinks all around. To, uh, bounce back from this. Well, and isn't it true that Long Beach State is just a bunch of long-haired surfers that talk like, dude... Isn't that true? <laughs> Isn't that just most people in Southern California? I'm not sure if that's uh, exclusive to Long Beach. I mean, these guys are guys that don't even, they only all play ball California to go surf. Click. <laughs> we just lost all of California. Wait, wait, Sirius XM 143, we're still here. Uh, come back, come back, come back. Wow, that's just sad. I mean, what's the deal? Was it just, I think it's because it's too late and because we know well, nothing they had good. To play late too. It's, well, but nothing it's... good happens after midnight. That's what everybody at BYU knows. It was a combination of a couple of things. Yeah, that's why we agreed to play the game. <laughs> I mean, it, it, granted, game two. It's game two. It's game two, two of a long series, of a long very year. long season. Yeah. So, yes, you know, you're still working out some of the kinks. And, and quite frankly, you know, BYU did not have its full complement of players in all of their exhibition matches. So, uh, it, it, you know, may, maybe this is taking a little bit longer to gel, but even even if it took a little bit longer to gel you don't expect BYU cuz BYU had a 10 to 2 lead to start the game and then went 8 plus minutes without scoring what is that about what is well, with all the dry spots come it, on it, it wasn't just they were missing jump shots they were missing they were turning right over at the so yeah, much. Were they? yeah. The, the rate of turnovers was impressive and depressing at the same time there were six charges called on BYU so they kept <sighs> going to the rim and wow. were Long Beach State was continuing to be rewarded that way. BYU made adjustments in the second half, but ultimately the offense couldn't execute at yeah. the level they needed. The defense hmm. played well. The de- uh, BYU's defensive side of that, you know, hmm. it's a bummer because BYU's not supposed to lose games like this if they want to, uh, you know, challenge Gonzaga for a conference championship, have a good seed in the NCAA tournament. A loss like this does not help that cause. No, and I mean, I guess an early loss, but you can't have many more of these. BYU's non-conference schedule is isn't particularly strong, where they can go into the uh, you know selection committee and have a, a resume with a, a top fifty RPI. In my opinion, maybe they will in the end, but BYU is going to need to win more games than they have the last couple of years. And last year was twenty five, so here's here's a loss that I I didn't think BYU was going to lose this game. I don't think they did either, um, and they come out with an L. So mm. Adam State Friday, Mississippi State, Valley State the next Wednesday, and then Belmont, which is a a decent game in the Marriott Center. The next week, Utah on the horizon, who's a ranked team. Yeah. Wow. Got to regroup now and uh, do work. <sighs> BYU had an off night. They, they really did in a lot of phases mm-hmm. and still almost won that game. Unfortunately, didn't come out with a win. Do you think they need my help? I mean, is there anything I can do? Not quite. Okay. But. Let me know. <laughs> you're, you're on the list. Let me know. <laughs> Just knowing that you're willing is. <laughs> that's, is that's half the battle. It, it is. is. Yeah. Joe no, I think that's said. exactly right. That, I think that is half the battle. Sort of. And I, I meant no offense to all of the surfers at Long Beach State. So what did you mean? I meant, you know, they're the 49ers, by the way. I'm they are the 49ers. See how I changed the subject? They go by the beach. Hey, let me, give you, let me give you a little update, and I've got a question for you. There was a Phoenix guy, a man that was caught in a high-speed, no, uh, he, he, was, he was like cornered on the roof of a motel. Um, and the cops were trying to get him down, but he wouldn't come down, and he was like wanted. He had a... He had a a warrant out for his arrest. He, he had he had one demand, actually two demands. He said he wanted three jelly filled donuts. Sounds reasonable. And a bottle of milk. 
And they so they said, uh, that's it? And he's like, yes. I'm not coming down until I get my jelly-filled donuts with powdered sugar on them and my milk. And they went and they had they found a Dunkin' Donuts down the street and they they made, intentionally made for this guy, his three donuts. And then they brought him some milk. And after he ate his donuts and milk, he turned himself in. What, like a gentleman. I mean, what a gentleman. So, yeah. so here's the, the question. What, was, the, was the milk warm? No, yeah, it was warm milk. Uh, a warm glass of milk and a piece of bread. Uh, so here's the question for you guys. What would it take to get you two off a roof and in a cop car? What would your demand be? My demand? Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, this could happen. Something would be, anything, It would be financial for sure for me. I haven't done anything wrong, so I'd say, yeah, I'll go with you. Oh, Jerem, you're so in denial. <laughs> that's, what every, that's what every guy getting arrested says. Hey, I didn't do it. Just give me some donuts. You would think, you know, some donuts? if they were willing to do something for him, he may, you know, raise the bar a bit. Yeah, I mean, he could have gone for a dozen. Baker's right, dozen. You know what else yeah, I want? Baker's dozen. A dozen's <laughs> not going to get it done. Baker's dozen may. <laughs> so so Jason would go for a Baker's dozen. What would you go for, Jerem? I, Come on. I don't know because I don't. Jeremy. Commit crimes that roofs. You're still in denial. Myself in this situation. And, and here would be my stipulation: I want the baker's dozen, but <laughs> so help me if any of those are jelly filled or cream filled, deal is off. Oh, because you don't. Yeah, you don't I, like I'm a not, surprise. I'm not a guy. No, you're I'm not a surprise guy. guy. I want maple. I want chocolate. <laughs> I want six I want maple bars <laughs> and no sprinkles. <laughs> No, actually, I do want sprinkles. You're a sprinkle guy, I but a you don't. Sprinkle want, guy, you don't want How does that guy have leverage to call for that in that moment? <laughs> he's on the oh. roof. If 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 he doesn't come down, they're going to have to get up if there. He, if he doesn't come down, he's going to come down. They're going to have to explain <laughs> if he does come down the other way that you know we That's had an right. opportunity to just spend five bucks and That's we could have right. got him off the roof. We could have tased him, or They're we like, could well, get him some donuts. It was actually, twelve. They were really expensive. The, the reality is, let's be real. The cops wanted some donuts, so the cops went and got some donuts. And then he's like, "Hey, you guys eating donuts?" And then, yeah, come on down. We'll give you some donuts. What a weird situation. Anyway, that's no, the news we bring you. See? So you guys bring sports. We bring that. Uh, what's going to be on your show? We bring the glaze, Matt. We, we bring the glaze. We bring you the sweetness. What, uh, what's on your show today, boys? We'll break down uh, Long Beach State, what happened and what it means for the season. Mm-hmm. Uh, Blaine Fowler will join us. He'll talk hoops and BYU football against Missouri, what happened there, and look ahead to Fresno State. Sweet, so sweet. Know. Jeff Judkins, former NBA yeah. player with the Celtics, among other teams, will join us, the women's basketball coach. His team uh, got a win on Friday. They play a really tough game Thursday against Oklahoma. Uh, we'll talk with him. And then baseball signee D.C. Clawson, wow. who chose the Cougars, signed with BYU, one of the best defensive catchers in the country. He'll join us as well. That's a great show. Plus, you got Jason Shepard locked and loaded. Yeah, Shep's in the house, and we're both running on like four hours of sleep. So. That's why, yeah. Four hours? Wow. You or got three. Yeah, three. You know, I'm uh, looking at like two well, and a half. I counted the one-hour nap that I got in. Your team should go get you some donuts. That's what I'm saying. We are not doing this show until want, we get donuts I and milk. maple! <laughs> I want chocolate and I want glaze now! Oh, boy. Look what please, we started. Please. That's a diva please. right there. You Devo. can say anything if you say please. And, exactly. and by the way, I want 1% milk. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I think, only had skim. It's, Sorry, the least, it's the least they can give you. Guys, have a great show. It sounds like it's going to be a doozy. Knock them dead. And then Thanks, you can get Matt. sleep later. You can sleep later. Take care, gentlemen. I'm going there to the green go. room right now. They're, they'll wake up before the top of the hour, I promise. <laughs> Good luck, guys. Thanks. Thanks. Uh, interesting. Man, that's a big – that's a hard thing to go watch the game until 2.30 in the morning, and then you got to get up and do your show. See, that's why I just TiVo everything. You know? I need my nine hours of sleep.
that I never get. Hey, um, so Ben, what would you get off the roof for? Because you're, you're a very simple man. I am. So what would it take you to say, okay, I'll come off the roof, officers? Probably a good bowl of ice cream. Wow. Not a cone? No, like ice cream, but you need to have a little bit of milk on the bottom. Oh, I love that. See, Ben, people don't know this, but Ben actually makes ice cream. He is a, he makes ice cream. He has a company. It's called We Make Ice Cream for you. Close. Dot com. Yeah. And, but he, he's an ice cream connoisseur. That's why you're saying that. Yes, I, I understand the elements that go into ice cream. Mm-hmm. So, Well, that's great. Uh, what would you go for, Terry? Terry just, you know, he 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 wants money. He wants – what would you go for, Terry? What would get you off of the roof if the cops showed up? I have no idea. Really? How about just – how about your son? Well, yeah, obviously. Okay, see, that was easy. That was easy. But you're, you're thinking about things. This guy got off the roof for donuts. Yeah. I mean, that's just easy. Easy peasy. I wouldn't get off for donuts. No. I'd get off for a lighter sentence. You're getting off the roof to get arrested. Mm-hmm. You need something. Leverage. To kind of make that, soften the impact of the arrest. Yeah. This, for this guy, it was donuts. For, and Ben, it's ice cream. Right. For you? I don't know if I'd get off the roof. Mine wouldn't be food. Mine wouldn't be candy. Mine wouldn't be any of that. If they wouldn't arrest me. Oh, yeah. There you go. Okay, I'll get off if you promise not to arrest me. Okay, we promise. <laughs> don't you lie. Don't you lie. That's a great answer. Hey, uh, there's, here's a woman that, um, you know, this is why you want to get them off with donuts because this didn't work out so well. A Western Pennsylvania woman was arrested on theft charge. And she's admitted she stole a police cruiser and led the police officers on an 80-mile-an-hour high-speed chase, all while her hands were cuffed behind her. (laughs) The 30-say 28-year-old Roxanne Reimer was handcuffed and placed in the back of a cruiser after being accused of shoplifting in January. Officials say she squeezed through an unlatched opening and crawled into the front seat of the cruiser and then zoomed off and led officers on nearly a 10-mile chase, weaving in and out of traffic before crashing. Was she steering with her chin? Apparently doing the old chin steer and the knee steer. (laughs) See, so you can either have your car crashed by somebody that's cuffed, or you can give a guy three jelly donuts, for heaven's sakes. Get off my back. It's a very simple answer. All you got to do is just give them what they want, right? Just give me what I want. Anyway, um, so that's, that's, you know, that's important. There's a lot of things that matter, some things that don't. We always like to wrap up the show with a hero story. 31-year-old construction worker, husband and father, Byron Price, is my hero of the day. He's a construction worker that, construction worker that thwarted a stabbing attack at UC Merced. Byron Price was supervising a classroom renovation at the University of California, Merced, when he heard a noise across the hall and then a woman's screams. He rushed over to help, assuming a female professor was trying to break up a fight or something. He struggled to push open the barricaded door, and when he finally did, the professor screamed for him to run. Inside the room, a knife-wielding Faisal Mohammed 
was holding the woman and her students hostage. Mohammed made eye contact with Price, had a sinister smirk, lifted his 10-inch hunting knife, slashing it downward. According to the, his manifesto, Mohammed wanted revenge after being kicked out of the study group. Mohammed had already stabbed one student when Price barged in, but officials say Price's actions saved many lives. Police later fatally shot Mohammed. When Mohammed lunged to attack him, Price dropped to the ground to use his legs to kick in self-defense. Mohammed drove his knife into Price's stomach, hitting bone. Then he ran off, and the uh, survivors watched in horror as Mohammed approached a woman outside and plunged the knife into her chest. Then he stabbed a male student before he sh- uh, the police shot him. No one else was killed. Everyone else survived. Price has since wondered if anyone had sensed that Mohammed needed help. He plans to use this incident to teach his kids to pay attention to other people and to be aware of the way others are feeling. That's pretty cool. Byron Price, you are the hero of the day on the Matt Townsend Show. Thank you for just being there and for paying attention and for your your wonderful intention of helping us uh, pay more attention to other people's feelings. Good stuff. takes a lot uh, to be willing to put your life at risk like you did, and we appreciate it. Folks, that's the show. We can't do it without you. We'll be again uh, on the air tomorrow, and you can find us again right here on BYU Radio or look us up on iTunes or tune in. Um, You can also follow us on Facebook. We're everywhere, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Until tomorrow, take care of each other, look after each other, and make it a great one. We'll talk again tomorrow.